Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com uh, I always uh, check the, the footnotes when I read different reports uh, that you've authored. Uh, and even a lot of times just in, in the course of uh, our conversations, you'll reference other books and what have you. So I get reading material. Uh, when I was reading one of your drafts, uh, you mentioned uh, the 2014 publication, The Delectable Negro, Human Consumption and Homoeroticism oh, yeah. Within U.S. Slave Culture. And I said, wowee, this is fantastic. So I go, I check it out. And uh, what is this? What does this book reveal about white supremacy that we generally ignore or don't think about? Oh, man. Uh <laughs> You know, I taught this in my grad course this semester in anti-colonialism. So, you know, we went through a pretty close reading of it. Uh, it, it, it reveals a few things. One, that African people were afraid of Europeans uh, as cannibals, and that cannibalism or what uh, Woodard talks about as a kind of parasitic relationship that whites had to the black body was very much a part of, of, of enslavement. Uh, that being said, Woodard also argues that one of the ways that um, – this kind of parasitic relationship works is not only through physically eating black men, uh, which is which he demonstrates there with Nat Turner, but also through rape. And he says that you know one of the reasons he uses John Smith's or uh, James Smith's uh, autobiography, he goes back to Frederick Douglass's autobiography. He of course talk about you know talks about Linda Brent's scene where you know. Uh, the young black boy is chained to the bed of the master. He says that, look, all these are examples of how white men, uh, white culture, white supremacy sought to consume black male bodies. And he says that one of the problems that we have, and you know, this is kind of his attack on uh, the, the present order of how we study racism and, and slavery, is that we can't imagine the relationship of white men as homosexuals. That there's a homosexuality that existed within slavery and within America that is never taken up. 
because largely because we don't want to talk about anal penetration. Uh, and the last few chapters talks about both the pleasure and the torture of that two black male bodies. You know, so it's a deep book. It's a very deep book. Uh, and, you know, but it's books like that that are trying to document this other kind of history uh, that really don't catch a lot of attention outside of queer, queer studies. And I think that that's a mistake. So I can tell you that in my field of philosophy, uh, people don't even read this stuff. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm still getting into arguments that if I talk about black men being raped and my actual convictions, because on my Facebook page, I post a lot of convictions of uh, white women and white men who raped uh, black men and boys. Uh, you know, people are saying, well, look, this is anti-woman. You know, they, they leak into some like men's rights or whatnot. You know, but this is a history. This is not a reaction of white, of, of black men saying we're losing privileges. They're like, this is a history of victimization. Black men have been raped as part of the institutions of Jim Crow slavery and American racism. Uh, but there's lots of pushback for this type of stuff, uh, largely because of heteronormativity and also because, you know, we have a certain kind of uh, feminist politics that doesn't want to move beyond the heteronormative mythology of sexual sexuality. Uh, so it makes it very difficult for these kinds of conversations to gain traction because even when you have an excellent work like, you know, Woodard's Delectable Negro or even Foster's work or, uh, you know, I mean, there's so many more. I mean, even when you, I mean, hell, you got Baldwin, you know, going to meet the man. Even when you read these kinds of texts, uh, people are not ready to make that part and parcel of the conversation, you know, and it's a reality. It's just histor it's historically true. These things did happen. The question is, how do we articulate them under theory, and how do we bring this to the explanation awareness of, of black people more generally? You know, this, these are one of the things that history's hidden. Nobody wants to see a white woman as a rapist, and nobody wants to think as, of white men as having homosexual urges towards black men. Mm. It's, it's not popular. Do you, do you see these uh, patterns repeating, like right now, 2015, in terms of either the uh, literal or symbolic cannibalism of the black body? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll give you an example about this. Uh, so there was a case um, in Ohio uh, about Dion Payne. He was murdered by two white men. And this is very recent. This was, you know, this happened in 2000, August of 2014. He was raped and anally penetrated by these white men, and then he was killed and left dying at the steps of a, um, of a hospital. You know, they recently sentenced these people. They didn't charge them on rape. Uh, people started, you know, kind of a, a petition to get them charged on rape because he was a 16-year-old boy, uh, and nobody wanted to do it. So, I mean, and you see this all the time with Stop and Frisk. You see this with uh, just the brutality. I mean, like Darren Manny. He was the, the young boy during Stop and Frisk where he had his uh, testicles ruptured. Uh, they later found a blood clot. In. Like, so this happens all the time. Like, this isn't just a historical phenomenon. But, again, we don't talk about it. You know, it's like Eric Glover being uh, – they killed those two boys up in Joliet. I think that I mentioned this before, and and not not one blog wrote about it. Even these blogs, you know, saying that they're dedicated to race and gender and feminism and all this other stuff, didn't pick it up because it was two black male bodies. And you know, and I was just furious about it because I was like, you see, there's all these claims of erasure. Black people, black people generally don't care about black women. Black people don't care about any of these other things. They don't care about sex. But then it clearly shows that there's a blind side to how black people are being victimized in a variety of sexual ways with a variety of erotics and desires of white people being played out on their bodies and these things are just ignored because they're they're inconvenient for the theories that these blogs etc represent 
And I'm saying we need to move beyond all this. We have a historical record where white men rape black women. We have a record where black men rape black women. We have a record of black women raping black men and boys. Right? That's what happens in the real world. We need to start having conversations that address all of that and not trying to read the world through one narrow lens that says that it's only this or only that. So in 2015, where you have black men still being lynched, where you still have black men's organs being taken out of their bodies, where you have black men being raped and killed, 16-year-old boys raped and killed and castrated, then I think we need to have a new conversation. I think perhaps, just perhaps, homoeroticism and the sexual lure of the black male body becomes relevant to how these black men and boys are being mutilated. But, you know, that's just me. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, February 17th, 2017. So I have been told this is our fourth study session on Vincent Woodard's The Delectable Negro Human Consumption and Homoeroticism Within U.S. Slave Culture. Uh, we're picking up. We're almost at the end of chapter two. Uh, we, I think, only have a, a few pages left, and we'll wrap this chapter up, uh, and then we'll be moving forward. Uh, that was Dr. Tommy J. Curry in the beginning. Uh, that was the first time that we discussed this book on the program. Again, give credit. Uh, he's the person that uh, the whole reason that we're doing this book to begin with. Without further ado. The Delectable Negro, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one. The Taste of Nat Turner In the final section of this chapter, I want to more concretely deal with the topics of taste and flesh cultivation that emerged from Smith's abuse. Nat Turner's life and political legacy represents one of the most graphic documented cases of white cultivated taste for the Negro manifesting as literal consumption and the harvesting of body parts. The literal consumption of Turner alongside the sexualized consumption of Smith offer a fuller picture of white hunger for black flesh and sex coinciding with white male codes of honor and self-glorification. The themes of white male nobility, a cultivated appetite for the Negro, and human consumption all inform the life and legacy of Nat Turner. As a result of the controversial nature of Turner's memory and legacy in his hometown of Southampton, Virginia, there exists to this day no memorial to commemorate his life and his efforts to free enslaved persons of the region. Outside the historical society in the center of town, there is a colonial-era house that stands on a raised brick foundation behind a sign that reads, This is the last house on the killing spree of Nat Turner and his men. Whites regard Turner, in local lore and memory, as the murderer of whites and their babies, as a twisted sexual deviant, and as a depraved example of criminal insanity. In antebellum America, whites even went as far to depict Turner and his accomplices as murderous cannibals who hungered for white flesh. In Harriet Beecher Stowe's fictional rendering of the Turner Revolt in Dread, she has a black male insurrectionist say, When the Lord saith unto us, Smite, then we we smite. We will not torment them with the scourge and fire, nor defile their women, as they have done with ours. But we will slay them utterly, and consume them from off the face of the earth. 
even among the most well-intentioned white abolitionists, the harsh reality of unmitigated black male violence and retribution conjured racist images of African cannibals engaged in human consumption. From abolitionist tract to court records to the journals and correspondence of U.S. statesmen, this notion of Turner and his soldiers as cannibalistic held sway. For example, Governor John Floyd of Virginia described in his diary a cannibalistic scenario that had been conveyed to him through written transcripts of court trials. Throughout this affair, he noted, the most appalling accounts have been given of the conduct of the Negroes, the most inhuman butcheries the mind can conceive of, men, women, and infants, their heads chopped off, their bowels ripped out, ears, noses, hand, and legs cut out, no instance of mercy shown. Floyd paints the image of Turner and his men killing and then tearing open, ripping through, and harvesting a white person's body parts. Whites from the North and South, of both abolitionist and slaveholding sentiments, contrived to paint an image of Turner as cannibalistic, and more importantly, as dishonorable and self-hating man. In History of Virginia, from its discovery and settlement by Europeans to the present time, Robert R. Howison describes Turner as small and somewhat feeble in body, but of shrewd and enthusiastic mind. Newspaper accounts from the time proliferated with misinformation designed to discredit and dishonor Turner's efforts. In the American Beacon, they had Turner admitting to cowardice and fanaticism. He, not Turner, acknowledges himself a coward and says he was actuated to do what he did from influence of fanaticism. He says the attempt originated entirely with himself. The Petersburg Index, reporting on the Turner insurrection over 30 years later, described the black revolutionary thusly. Nat Turner came out of the dismal swamp starved at last and was taken and hung as a monster black fiend, and history has passed him as a murderer on the gallows. Whites had to dishonor Turner, disfigure him, and make of his person and legacy a monstrosity. Such a strategy of character assassination deflected attention away from the real brutal circumstances of slavery that initiated Turner's revolt and the incidents of literal consumption that informed the execution of Turner and the treatment of his corpse. After Turner was captured, he was hung, skinned, and bled, and his body was boiled down to grease. Blacks of the region around this time swore off the consumption of castor oil. According to William Sidney Drury, a late 19th century historian, the famous remedy of doctors of antebellum days, castor oil, was long dreaded for fear it was old Nat's grease. Drury and others have referred to such beliefs as an older prejudice among common, common rather, among older darkies. Even younger, more liberal historians, such as Scott French, have labeled black concerns over consuming Nat Turner as folk belief. For the most part, scholars have shied away from the question of what Southampton whites wanted with Nat Turner's grease. In contrast to the rhetoric of Turner as a monstrous and unpalatable figure, 
It helps to know that during that time period, white men associated honor and nobility with unspeakable acts of violence and consumption perpetrated against black bodies. General Epps, for example, described the treatment of black persons as revolting, inhuman, and not to be justified, and characterized by acts of atrocity. Perhaps the general had in mind individuals like the following black man, whom White shot, quartered, and beheaded for no reason at all, except that he knew nothing about the Turner insurrection. He told them he didn't know anything about any insurrection. They shot several balls through him, quartered him, and put his head on a pole of the fork of the road leading to the court. This is no exaggeration, if the Virginia newspapers may be taken as evidence. The Turner insurrection brought out in whites, in particular in white men, a violently stoked appetite and rabid hunger for black flesh. Unspoken codes of honor and vengeance drove whites to quarter, burn, maim, and behead blacks, whom they saw as having violated the sacred providence, provinces of white masculinity, white family, and the innocence embodied in murdered white babies. In this context of unchecked violence, there was nothing to keep plantation whites from first murdering and then tasting and ingesting Turner. Yet, since slavery, Southampton whites have made a mockery of black observations of white cannibalism and denied the same observations made by whites. In a 1931 editorial, J.S. Musgrave cites from a history text that documents the consumption of Turner. The excerpt reads, Knott's body was boiled up, his oil saved and sold for a long period as a panacea for all ills and known as Knott's grease. Musgrave refers to these documented observations as pure, unalloyed bunk. He treats into a typical, rather, he retreats into a typical mode of white denial. Yet when one thinks about the boiling down of Turner's flesh in an inquiring manner, it makes sense to ask, for what purpose did Whites use his liquefied flesh? Was it used to cook food, oil the body, for ingestion as medicine, or for some other domestic use? Working from a largely unrevised notion of the folk, scholars have failed to see the inherent layers of inquiry in the folks' refusal to eat Nat Turner. It would have been so much simpler to hang, bury, or burn the body. Why go through all the effort involved in bleeding the corpse and boiling down the flesh? Why preserve the liquid flesh of one so hated and feared? Why behead him and secretly preserve the skull? Ironically, we find the suspicions of the folk validated and archived in Eurocentric hegemony and legacy. The treatment of Nat Turner's body might possibly date back to Renaissance and early American societies. Under the auspices of medical cannibal, the practice of preserving and ingesting body parts for medical purposes, Europeans preserved and ingested blood, skin, and other body parts. According to Shirley Lindenbaum, it was common for Renaissance and Victorian-era Europeans to ingest human tissue, usually that of an executed criminal, as a supposed medicine or tonic. Reverend 
Edward Taylor was a New England practitioner whose dispensary included remedies made from human blood, heart, flesh, and other parts of the human body meant to be took or ingested. In this practice, which Taylor brought over from England, the body parts were usually obtained from criminals hanged for various crimes. It was commonly thought that the best parts came from artificial mummies, who had died a violent death. Not surprisingly, one cannot readily find such information in general inventories of med medis medical supplies in the early American colonies or within the contents list of apocalypse. Southampton Whites and others involved with the Turner insurrection wrote to deny this European legacy of the consumption of criminals and, more specifically, of Turner as a nutritional substance. With intention, Whites have reconstructed the narrative of Turner's consumption through metaphors of the Negro as disgusting and tainted and through references to the grotesqueness of the Negro body and soul. Governor Floyd described the Turner affair as leaving him with a bad taste in my mouth. Days later, he again used gastronomical metaphors to describe his visceral response to Turner's insurrection. Eleventh day, I hear nothing this morning from below. I do not feel so badly as yesterday. I had more appetite today and not so bad a taste in my mouth. Governor Floyd gives the impression of Turner and Turner's violent actions inspiring disgust at the levels of gut and taste. Yet as I have demonstrated throughout this chapter, the consumption of black persons on literal and metaphoric levels reified and restored in whites a sense of honor and ennobled social stature, not to mention that Turner likely served as a nutritional substance to the whites who used his body in that manner. Governor Floyd's personal and sentimental recordings obscure the easy and seamless translation of white male rage after the Turner insurrection into literal appetite and hunger for black flesh. I cited earlier the example of the black man who was tortured, beheaded, and had his head hung on a pole for not admitting to information about the Turner insurrection. Rare and honest white citizens from the time period described the treatment of blacks in the region following the insurrection as a reign of terror, that is, white-inspired terror. What better way to annihilate the threat of one's terror, I'm speaking of white terror here, than through consumption, a permanent taking in of that which horrifies, that which embodies the threat of self and communal annihilation? Governor Floyd responds to the taste of Turner, though one of revulsion, indicates that whites had all manner of appetite-based responses to Turner. The governor's outrage, terror, and sense of violated honor take the form of abjection. In others, similar sentiments generated the opposite effect, leading whites to rape, pillage, behead, and castrate blacks. Tasting and ingesting Turner in this context of retribution an erotic violation would have represented for white men the ultimate erotic and satiating act. Rather than projecting their desire through the violation of black bodies, communities, and homes, white men could, through the oral ingestion of Turner, experience at first hand a taste of the terror, fascination, 
hatred, and death wish that they felt toward the black liberator. Given this fuller explication of the autoerotic and necrophilic implications of the consumption of Turner, it makes better sense that whites would still today deny and attempt to suppress black accusations of white appetite for and consumption of Turner. That consumption reveals too much, takes us too deep for the comfort of most, into the interior reality of white males' hunger and the death drive they fixated upon the Negro. For at least two generations, the entire Southampton black community stopped using castor oil. This gesture of communal solidarity and fear of consumption of a black man is arresting for what it conceals, and also for what it reveals, through a communal gesture of silence and knowing. What more did these historically silenced persons know? When did they definitely begin to know? And at what cost do we continue to deny the basis of their knowledge and the implications of their resistance? A Tale of Hunger Retold Ravishment and Hunger in F. Douglas's Life and Writing Frederick Douglass describes slavery more eloquently than anyone else has as a cannibalistic institution. In images striking and poetically resonant, he depicts slavery in the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, as a personified, stern reality glaring frightfully upon us, its robes already crimson with the blood of millions, and even now feasting itself greedily upon our own flesh. Slave traders he thought of as human fleshmongers. In the context Douglas described, slave owners cultivated consumption, hunger, and starvation at all levels of social interaction. If it was not Aunt Katie, the cook on one plantation, who was literally starving Douglas, then it was a master punishing a hungry slave for stealing molasses by making him drink gallons of it until he sickened and gorged on the sweetness. Such examples proliferate in all of Douglas's works, including Narrative, My Bondage, and My Freedom, and The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. To my knowledge, little scholarly analysis exists of the culture of consumption depicted in Douglass's narratives. This is striking, considering that in Douglass's narratives and in the slave narratives I discussed in previous chapters, such references abound, not to mention those slaves who were literally consumed in the catalog of flesh cooking, consumption rituals, and habitual flesh taking that formed a part of the larger archive of consumption. Building on the findings of earlier chapters, I want to move beyond acknowledging and arguing for cannibalism as a social reality for the enslaved person to the particular ways that the male slave resisted and internally wrestled with this dominant hunger and appetite. In this chapter, I examine three different ways that Douglas wrestled with consumption at the hands of others and self, the two acts often occurring simultaneously. First, I examine how mental and emotional consumption coincided with coded instances of rape at the hands of an overseer. Sexual and spiritual consumption overlap especially in Douglas's first two narratives, providing insight into how he understood sex, at least abusive sex, 
as one way white men attempted to consume him. Also, in this first section, I introduce the topic of incest. The most formative sexual encounters that shape Douglas's life and structure his narratives have to do with the incestuous treatment of an aunt, his mother, and himself. This topic of incest takes on increased importance as Douglas attempts throughout his life to work through sexually latent kinship ties with white men. The second thing I consider is a condition of mother hunger that characterized much of Douglas's life. The fear of social consumption, the hunger for family, for civilized lineage, for safety, physical satiation, and for paternity show up often in Douglas's writing as mother hunger. Even in his relationships with white authoritative figures and heads of state, this mother hunger emerged as erotic desire, affection, and the need for care and intimacy. Lastly, I applied the framework of male effeminacy developed in the previous two chapters to Douglas himself. Alongside his heroic male identity, Douglas described himself as playing the role of male concubine and male daughter to the plantation system and to certain white male authority figures. Douglas depicts this role mostly as negative, but I focus on how, from a reproductive, procreative perspective, this role strikes a balance in his life. For out of dangerous, potentially self-consumptive hunger, he gives birth to the central statutes and tenets of the U.S. Republic. This hunger and desire, combined with Douglas's intellect and stoic reserve, inform his vision and unique contributions of genius to American culture. For the most part, scholars of Douglas's written work have overlooked the proliferation of references to appetite, multiple layers of hunger, and consumption in his three narratives. David Van Leer, an exception to this trend, calls attention to a section from the narrative that highlights the horrors of cannibalism, dismemberment, and execution. In his cursory treatment of cannibalism in Douglas's narrative, Van Leer describes such occurrences as imaginative, acts, and as part of fictionalizing moments in Douglas's text. Importantly, rather than treating Douglas's claims as real, Van Leer metaphor metaphorizes and fictionalizes the race leader's observation. Van Leer analyzes textual and literal literary conventions such as the Gothic and sentimental traditions informing Douglas's style and choice of images. The deeper presumption underlying Van Leer's observations, and I believe fueling the inattention to this topic in Douglas's writing, is the notion that cannibalism has nothing to do with enlightenment, with myths of American progress, and with nation-making in the 19th century. It is, to put it bluntly, inconceivable to most that cannibalism was an implicit aspect of slave culture, and more broadly, of American race caste systems based on the psychophancy of slavery. Still, Douglas depicts the slave institution as cannibalistic, and he gives us also a telling glimpse into the manner of which he internally resisted and wrestled with the reality of his social consumption. Describing the slave condition as one of consumption and self-consumption, Douglas describes slavery in the narrative 
as a condition of starvation, causing us to eat our own flesh. In the life and times of Frederick Douglass, he describes himself as enmeshed in webs of soul-devouring thought that reinforce the fact that he is a slave. Douglass parallels the material reality of cannibalism with interlocking ideologies of cannibalism that allow the master to consume the slave in body as well as in spirit and thought. Douglass's observations affirm Carl O. Williams' understanding of slavery as a highly stylized, institutionalized form of cannibalism. Williams describes thraldom, slavery, as a degree of cannibalism, wherein the master is a human parasite who, by the right of might, has secured his fellow man in the bonds of thraldom in order to feed upon him for the satisfaction of his appetite. Further elaborating on the erotics of this libidinal hunger, Orlando Patterson notes that what the slave mainly fed was the master's sense of honor and his sexual appetite, for the economic role of the slave was quite marginal among most of the continental Germanic tribes. Germanic slavery, differing from U.S. chattel slavery, was less economically driven and more of a domestic variety, which served to highlight the interpersonal connection between master and slave. Through U.S. slavery, pardon me, though U.S. slavery was economically driven, this tie between the hunger and sexual appetite of the ruling class also applied to it. Perhaps even more so, as the exotization of the African type in early racial codes heightened white titillation at the thought of black flesh. In the 19th century, allusions to the consumption of and flesh hunger for black males proliferated in American culture. However, black men such as Douglas often alluded to this culture through subtle references to manhood and black male bodies exotically exposed before whites. In an 1854 speech delivered by the racial liberator before an audience of educated white males, Douglas debated the subject of black humanity. An ethnologist by the name of Mr. Grant, who was present at the meeting, distributed scientific statistics and studies as proof against the humanity of the Negro. A master elocutionist, Douglas used the stark example of himself, his powerful rhetorical capabilities, his face, and his entire physical conformation to refute Grant's argument. Turning to the assembled audience, he demanded of them, You judge between me and that gentleman, Mr. Grant. Am I a man? This exchange, and especially Douglas' closing reference to his manhood, calls to mind a more notorious contestation over gender that occurred the following year, in 1851. According to Dana Gage, synopsis of the Ohio Women's Rights Convention, Sojourner True Toward had a commanding air about her and consistently drew attention to the problem and plight of black womanhood through her oft-repeated question, Anna a woman? Cognizant of the biblical arguments against black humanity, Truth used references to biblical women to authorize her voice and the fact that she could labor as much as any man to reset the premium of the burden and labor of black females. On a separate occasion, at a meeting Truth convened in Indiana in 1858, the female itinerant preacher found herself challenged outright 
as a man and not a woman before removing herself backstage to undergo a breast exam by white women present at this event, Truth masterfully exposed the undercurrent of sexualization, incest, and the desire for access to black female bodies that was fueling her accusers. She invited them to suck at her breast, offered to reveal her bosom before all persons assembled, and compared the men present to white babies sucking at the breast of a plantation nursemaid. Importantly, Truth's references to suckling, tasting, and ingesting allude to the social consumption of the black female caregiver. Issues of sexual access, physical exposure, and rape also informed Douglas's presentation, but he deflected audience attention from the feminine exposure of his body, taking off his shirt to reveal his scars, by drawing their attention to the masculine display of his face, voice, and intellectual prowess. Navigating through undercurrents of exposure, concealment, secrecy, revelation, Douglas offers his visage and commanding posture as a standing accusation against the slaveholder's father and their concealed sexual crimes. Douglas was well aware that whites, even abolitionist whites, took pleasure and gratification in seeing black bodies exposed. In My Bondage and My Freedom, he observes that John A. Collin, general agent of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, would often introduce him as a graduate from the peculiar institution with my diploma written on my back. He found himself consistently referred to as a brand new fact, property, chattel, and a thing by abolitionists. Collins and others would habitually caution Douglas against speaking with too much education in his voice. Better have a little of the plantation man of speech than not, they chided. Tis not best you seem too learned. The irony of having to speak in this manner from the so-called slave body is that the most visceral truth pertaining to consumption and sexual maltreatment remained obscured. White men did not have to own up to their subtle phallic references and anxieties and their desires for a nurturing, consumable black male phallic object. I will come back to this connection among black masculinity, nurturing, and white male appetite as it recurs in Douglas's relations with white men. The naked, unintelligible slave body served as fodder for the white imagination. It allowed whites to entertain the idea of the Negro as the lady of races, as passively subject to the more aggressive will and ways of the European. It also reinforced the idea of the slave as infantile. In relationship to abolitionist William Lord Garrison, Douglas wrote that he stood something like that of a child to a parent, which harkened back to Douglas's infantile relationships to cruel parental plantation masters. I placed Douglas alongside Truth as a way of illuminating how they each had to negotiate an idea of black humanity linked ideologically and historically to issues of gender variance, sexual, homosexual abuse, white appetite, and incestuous kindred relationships to white masters and their plantation progeny. In contrast to Truth, Douglas and black men in general 
dealt with such issues through diversion. They drew attention away from their bodies and their sexuality. Am I a man? Aren't I a woman? Each question informed the other as questions rather than statements revealed a sense of gender instability both Douglas and Truth felt. We still do not know what to do with the reality of Truth's sexual molestation by one of her plantation mistresses, or more broadly, with the complex ways white women desired, hated, abused, and sexually lusted after black women on the plantation. In the case of Douglas, who masterfully manipulated the desires and expectations of the white man in his audience, questions of effeminacy, sexual abuse, and sexual transgression form a template. Not speaking about these topics, titillating and chastising his male listeners with this common knowledge make possible Douglas's claim to heroic masculinity. Scholars of Douglas's life and work have tended to focus upon and emphasize the male aspects of Douglas's genealogy, his relationship to Garrison and Wendell Phillips, his relationships to Old, Kobe, and Sandy from the plantation, his depiction of his maternal legacy as the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II. We should never forget that Douglas, a master linguist, always spoke in code. He always spoke to both sides of a gender fluidity that lay at the root of his epistemology and rhetorical self-fashion. Given this fact of Douglas's rhetoric, I want to move momentarily into the murky, unstable regions of the question, am I a man? Because I think that we have tended to presume too much about the fixity of Douglas's manhood. We have presumed too much, I feel, about Douglas's internal investment in being a man especially when he consistently employed female modes of speaking about sexual violation, personal mythology, and genealogy in his writing. In addition to recording a masculine genealogy of experience, Douglas wrote to situate himself within a subliminated genealogy of female experience. As evidence of this female genealogy, I want to turn briefly to the notorious Aunt Hester scene first recounted in Douglas's narrative and referenced in his last two autobiographies. Deborah McDowell has written that Douglas's graphic depiction of his aunt, aunt's abuse puts him into a voyeuristic relation to the violence against slave women, which he watches, and thus enters into a symbolic complicity with the sexual crimes he witnesses. Likewise, Van Leer has interpreted this scene as marking the impenetrable boundary of Douglas's manhood. He writes, As a male, he is shut out from a knowledge of this uniquely female experience. McDowell and Van Leer, each in different ways, presume a boundary of masculinity marked by female abuse. Van Leer suggesting that Douglas was not sexually abused and was never subject to the struggles of sexual dominance that define his aunt's existence. While I do not want to dismiss valid points that do speak to Douglas's overt self-fashioning and performing of masculinity for his readers, I want to insert a third reality, and that is that Douglas narrates Hester's graphic abuse because he intimately understood it and because it was the only way that he could reference his own struggles over sex 
against sexual consumption and against the master's quest for sexual dominance over the male slave's body. The brutality and trauma of Douglas's narrative literally begins with the Hester scene. Up to that point, Douglas gives general information, a description of where he grew up, and the details of his family life. A few pages into the narrative, the author assails us with the image of the aunt hanging from a meat hook in the kitchen. After crossing her hands, he tied them with a strong rope and led her to a stool under a large hook in the joist, put in for the purpose. He made her get up upon the stool and tied her hands to the hook. She now stood fair for his infernal purpose. Her arms were stretched up at their full length so that she stood upon the ends of her toes. Douglas alludes to the brutalizer's absence of pure morals and virtue in his depictions of the master's cursing of Hester, frequently calling her a dumb bitch, and his outrage that she would go to see her lover from another plantation, Ned Roberts. Douglas gives us just enough information to understand the master's sexual motivations. While Douglas probably could have, he does not take from his memories a literal instance of rape. Slaves, male and female, never depicted the graphic details of rape. They alluded to it often, but out of concern with decorum and preserving the sensibilities of their readers, they never provided graphic sexual details. By giving us a torture scenario laden with sexual tension, and the implicit understanding that Anthony has raped Hester in the past, Douglas brings us more immediately into the layered and complicated meanings of slave life. In this world, physical brutality is often informed by sexual violence and the dynamics of sexual domination. Also important is the undercurrent of incest. Captain Anthony, the slave master, is Douglas's father, which Douglas knows at the time he pens the narrative. It is possible that Anthony's father raped Hester's mother, resulting in a kinship tie between the captain and Hester. Her noble form and graceful proportions, unparalleled among the colored or white women of the neighborhood, allude to her mulatto racial status. Douglas does not give enough details for the reader to know her exact parenting. One thing that we know from slave history, though, is that incestuous behavior on many plantations was generational, a pattern of behavior that the son learned from the plantation father or overseer. Hester may have had a blood tie to Anthony. She may have been the daughter of his father, his uncle, or some other male relative. If Hester and Anthony did share a bloodline, then, a blood tie rather, then the prospect of Douglas cowering in the closet, fearing that he too might undergo the same type of punishment, takes on added meaning. He is not just speaking a child's terrors. Rather, he is honing in on the ways that this dynamic of sex and brutality unveils a dynamic of incest. Literally and metaphorically, then, Hester embodies a female genealogy for Douglas, a genealogy characterized by the body so debilitated and abused that it cannot speak. By incestuous desire, by the ritual sport of abuse, 
by gender ambiguity and, most importantly, by the spectacle of white male appetite and hunger. It is no coincidence that Hester's beating takes place in the kitchen and that Anthony, like the master who beat Henry's babe's wife, seems as though he would rather paddle a female than eat when he was hungry. Hester is hung up on a meat hook. Her pool of blood and flesh particles commingle with sites of food preparation, with the whole enterprise of feeding and sustaining life on the plantation. Hester brings into focus the multiple meanings of plantation torture and the difficulty of interpreting the scars and pain that result, as I showed earlier in the example with Douglas speaking about black humanity before an all-male audience. Douglas maintained a poignant awareness of the ways in which the naked, exposed body could work against him, diffusing his claims to represent manhood. The difficulty of speaking about the body, as I demonstrated earlier, shaped his early encounters with proprietary abolitionists. Early on in his public speaking career, Douglas refused abolitionists and the audience they generated access to his body. Touring throughout Europe with Garrison before the publication of his first narrative, Douglas replaced his body with that of his cousin Henny. Douglas frequently employed his cousin Henny to act out the role of female victim as an ancillary to his anti-slavery speeches, while also displaying ostentatiously a variety of whips, chains, and other tools of slavery, so as to make manifest the violence of a system that was often described elsewhere in more euphemistic terms. Douglas does exactly what McDowell asserts. He uses the mother and the female body as the vehicle that ensures his speakerly authority. In this way, the mother-woman silence precipitates the male son's ability to speak, and he shows, embodies, and demonstrates slavery. But it is Douglas who narrates and translates the body. He performs this same narration and translation on behalf of Hester. The effect of this gesture is that within the larger culture, Douglas comes to embody slavery, to take on the role of a paradigmistic paradigmatic slave, a gesture that was part of linguistic convention and a general cultural tendency to privilege maleness. Douglas was not the only black male author from the time period to use black feminine sex and torture in this manner. Francis Foster notes that from William Well Brown's character of Clotel to Alex Haley's Kizzy, our most frequent images of slave women are as victims of illicit sexual intercourse and as childless mothers. According to Foster, the reason black men gravitated to such depictions of black women during slavery and after is that the selling of children and the raping of women were actual events and the genre of the slave narrative defined women in terms of manners, morals, and motherhood. Anticipating McDowell's observation, Foster sees black men during slavery using female sex and abuse to foreground their manhood and natural paternal rights. Foster's observations show that Douglas's use of the black female was not an individual occurrence. Rather, it was symptomatic of a culture of 19th century black masculinity and slave narrative rhetoric. 
McDowell writes of a latent grammar operating beneath Douglas's descriptions of the mother. McDowell refers mostly to Douglas' effacing of his maternal legacy and using black maternal figures in his narratives to narrate his claims to rugged individualism and self-made genius. While this is true, there is also another implication of this latent grammar, and that is that Douglas consistently writes of black female abuse and sexualization in order to locate the unspeakable dimensions of his own sex and embodied knowledge within this latent framework. <clears throat> As scholars, we have tended to read Douglas's narratives at the level of rhetorical performance, convention, and sign. If rhetoric is the cumulative effect of oration, then grammar parses the finer units with the even finer components of these that enable this effect. A grammatical reading of Douglas's life and work begs that we draw closer, paying greater attention to mechanics, to details of body proximity, nuance, subterfuge, and male and female modes of speaking. Taking the idea of grammar literally, we should know that it is from women such as Sophia Hugh that Douglas first gains the rudimentary structure of the language. She teaches him the letters of the alphabet, to spell words of three or four letters, and to pronounce words from the Bible. It is her husband, Mr. Hugh, who breaks in on this opportunity for Douglas and forbids his wife to continue instruction. Ironically, from Master Yu's lecture forbidding his reading, Douglas receives his first decidedly anti-slavery lecture. Sophia's gesture towards teaching the rudiments of the language and her husband's negative response teach Douglas the first rules of the social grammar, inversion and subterfuge. He will apply these tools when he goes on to trick young boys into teaching him English by challenging their intellects, and exchanging food for grammar lessons, and mimicking the letter system used to mark crates at the shipyard. Moreover, in the second narrative, My Bondage and My Freedom, Douglas reveals that his mother could read and attributes his love of reading and the creative means of acquiring literacy to her. I am happy to attribute, he said, any love of letters I possess, not to my admitted Anglo-Saxon paternity, but to the native genius of my sable, unprotected, and uncultivated mother. As with Hester, Captain Anthony sexually violated Douglas's mother, perhaps even subjected her to the same manner and style of abuse. The text of the page and the text of the female body are coterminous. For Douglas, learning to read and speak the written word would always intersect with speaking from, around, and through sexual abuse and sexual consumption, lending an entirely different interpretation to McDowell's notion of a latent grammar, informing Douglas's engagement with the black mother, a woman. Context of white supremacy, that is the first audio segment, the delectable Negro human consumption and cannibalism in U.S. slave culture. Oh, it's human consumption and homoeroticism in U.S. slave culture. There we go. 
All right, so we will pick up. We're still in Chapter 3. We'll pick up the subheading as Male Daughter uh, for the second audio segment. Folks have commentary they would like to share. The number to dial is 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you do not want to join... Or if you do not want to use your phone to call in, you can use the free vote line. It's linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Address again is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you put that address in, Look on the left of the page. You'll see the link that says Free Vote Line. Click it. It will open a small window on your screen. The top line, it is a drop-down menu. Select the number that I just gave out, which, again, is 641-715-3640. Next line, it will ask for the code. That code, again, is 564943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in a real name, nickname, press random keys, whatever you're comfortable with. Once you get all that entered, click the green button at the bottom. We will get you on the line. You should be able to hear the live broadcast. And it's the same procedure if you would like to participate. You'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. Once you do that, press one. We'll see your hand on the screen. We'll be able to get you on the live call. Uh, with that, if folks have commentary they would like to share, everyone who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Uh, please, no waiting around to the last minute. If you think you have commentary, observations that you would like to share, go ahead, get your hand up. Uh, all the folks that are with us so far, line should be open. Feel free to share your thoughts. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus. Uh, greetings to the callers and the listeners on the line, Rob and Milwaukee. <clears throat> um, I took a note, uh, page 100, where it says, in the case of Doug... Yes, sir. Okay, in the case of Douglas, who masterfully manipulated the desires and exceptions of the white men in his audience, questions of effeminacy, sexual abuse, and sexual transgression form a template. Not speaking about those topics, titillating and chastising his male listeners with this comment. 
common knowledge makes possible Douglas claims to heroic masculinity. Um, I'm uh, a little confused. Um, I, I thought I got a little clarity later in the text when um, the, I think the author spoke about that if a enslaved black person was telling the narrative of a rape that they wouldn't be that explicit. So in this part of the text, <clears throat> I guess uh, I'll start with the question. Um, uh, is the author saying that Douglas was uh, sexually abused or was he not sexually abused? And then um, the other thing that I wanted to touch on that I underlined um, that stood out, it said, given this fact of Doug, this is same page 100, just a little further down in the text. Given this fact of Douglas rhetoric, I want to move momentarily into the murky, I underline that word, unstable regions of the question, am I a man? Um, and uh, that that part of the text stood out to me as well as the comparison um, and contrast of um, Frederick, Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth. And uh, thank you for letting me share, and I'll mute my line and chime back in later. Thank you. How interesting. What was the, the first portion? Uh, I guess it's on page 100. Uh, I guess it's above the paragraph that you read, given the fact of Douglas's rhetoric, so it's above that paragraph. Where is the first section you read? It said, uh, in the case of Douglas, who masterfully manipulated the desires and expectations of the white man and his audience, questions of effeminacy, sexual abuse, and sexual transgression form a template. Not speaking about those topics, titillating and chastising his male listeners with this common knowledge make possible Douglas's claims to heroic masculinity. Got it. Uh, and your question was, so is the author, Mr. Woodard, or the editors, are they saying that Frederick Douglass was abused or not? Or was yeah, I was trying to, I was really trying to grasp it. I, I thought I uh, had heard it and grasped it in the text, and then later on in the text it's saying um, that uh, I think it even said that he wasn't uh, abused. So I was just looking for a little clarity uh, on that. Thank you. Hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, I guess if, if listeners, as you share your thoughts, if you want to uh, respond to Rob in Wisconsin, his uh, questions, uh, you can feel free to add that as you share your own observations about the book. I'll offer my uh, response after you all get finished as well. Can I be here? Yes, sir. I'll give it to you, Dennis, um, to all the callers and listeners, um, to Rob as well. Um, from what I would just say to speak to Rob's question, from what I got from the text, because I have read it before, was that um, he was sexually abused, but he never explicitly states it, if I remember correctly. And part of the sexual abuse that 
we have to think about is not necessarily him being raped per se, but just being forced to watch your aunt being brutalized and raped is a form of sexual abuse. It's voyeuristic sexual abuse, the way he describes it in the text. Um, but I don't like the fact that he said that, that Douglas becomes complicit because Douglas can't be complicit. Excuse me, Frederick Douglas cannot be complicit in something in which he is a victim himself. He's just, it's just like forcing a person to watch you murder their wife or someone else who's close to them in order to terrorize you psychologically. And to me, that, that aspect where he kind of blamed Frederick Douglass by saying he became complicit um, by not saying anything about it. You can't say anything when you're a victim yourself. And if you did even think to speak up, you would be receiving the same treatment as your aunt who you're witnessing being sexually and physically um, mutilated. So I just wanted to just um, clarify that. And that was just my answer to, um, to Rob's question. Thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for the question. I thought um, your observations were really brilliant and um, what stood out to you. And I think that's really good because some of the things you focus on are just precise. And I like the way you open up um, and explore those, those things that might seem innocuous and, and maybe even small, but they turn out to have much deeper implications. So I appreciate your contributions every, every um, session. I appreciate you. And um, to get into the text, <clears throat> I think there's just so much great information here. Um, he says on page eight, uh, 93, rare and honest white citizens from the time period described the treatment of blacks in the region following the insurrection as a reign of terror, in quotes. That is white-inspired terror. What better way to annihilate the threat of one's terror, I'm speaking of white terror here, than through consumption, a permanent taking in of that which horrifies, that which embodies the threat itself, and communal annihilation. I say that, I expand that to say genetic annihilation. Governor Floyd's response to the taste, quote unquote, of Turner through one of revulsion indicates that whites had all manner of appetite-based responses to Turner. The governor's outrage, terror, and sense of violated honor takes the form of abjection. In others, similar sentiments generated the opposite effect, leading whites to rape, pillage, behead, and castrate blacks. Tasting and ingesting Turner in this context of retribution and erotic violation would have represented for white men the ultimate erotic and satiating act, rather than projecting their desire through the violation of black bodies, communities, and homes. White men could, through the oral ingestion of Turner, experience at first hand the taste of the terror, fascination, hatred, and death, death wish that they felt toward the black liberator. I found that to be so powerful because First, it reminded me of uh, in chimp society, whenever there's a brutal dictator male because they are a patriarchal um, primate society, sometimes the other males will gang up on the, the brutal leader and kill him. And when they kill him, they rip their testicles off and mutilate the body. So this seems like a carryover from subhuman primate behavior that white people still carry genetically. And the other aspect where they're talking about the oral ingestion of Turner um, and they can experience the firsthand terror, fascination, hatred, and death which they felt towards the black liberator. Kind of brings back to what I, when I spoke to Thomas in New York's question when he asked, does black flesh taste good to white people? Does it taste different? And I, was, I, and I explained that white people, part of their fascination is the fact that when you're killing any living thing, their bodies get a flood of adrenaline that has a narcotic effect on white people, and that is why they do so. You'll even see stories, even in this text, of them eating the heart or eating specific organs because those organs become infused with adrenaline, and they get further sexual arousal and gratification from that drug-like effect. Um, on the following page, he writes, 
for at least two generations, the entire sub, sub, Southampton black community stopped using castor oil. This gesture of communi- communal solidarity and fear of consumption of a black man is arresting for what it conceals and for what it reveals. Through a communal gesture of silence and knowing, what more did these historically silenced persons know? When did they definitively begin to know it? And at what cost do we continue to deny the basis of their knowledge and the implications of their existence? This speaks to something you've talked about, Gus, and quite a few of your guests, especially black guests, about black people discussing these things that they're going through, no matter how traumatic, so that we can literally pass on a culture to our children, which, like I said, is to give life-saving information to your offspring so that they understand the world they live in and how to try and successfully navigate the dangers of that reality. And that's what he's speaking to there. Um, And I think that's very, very important. And also... um, uh, it also shows, too, that historically, black people were never cannibalistic, because if we were, it would have been nothing for us to just say, yo, let's take the casserole and let's, let's, you know, let's, let's drink this, let's partake and turn this body like they want us to. Their revulsion to doing so shows that there was a cultural um, denial of even trying to go in that direction. And from what I know, um, just studying Nile Valley history, that um, cannibalism was outlawed so long ago, um, it's not even known when it was, but they say that it was Osiris that originally outlawed it. So that just speaks once to our cultural um, aspects of not doing so. Um, on page 97, he writes, our deeper presumption underlying Van Leer's observation, and I believe fueling the inattention to this topic in Doug- Douglas's writing, is the notion that cannibalism has nothing to do with enlightenment, the myths of American progress, and with the nation-making, and in 19th century, it is, to put it bluntly, inconceivable to most that cannibalism was an implicit aspect of slave culture and more broadly of the of American race slash caste system based um, in the psychophancy of slavery. And is that I find to be really telling as well, because it really just speaks to the fact that the entire slave system was one that was meant to be parasitic from the very beginning and up to and including the death and mutilation of the host. And through doing so, this is what white people really got more out of than anything else beyond to build, us building this nation and contributing everything that we have to what uh, he termed a genius, like uh, he said, Frederick Douglass um, contributed genius to American culture just through being uh, mutilated, excuse me, mutilated, terrorized, and tortured sexually. So this really just speaks to that parasitic nature. And I, I can see, um, because he doesn't write directly to address white people directly, I can see the... Um, the gender studies departments and stuff really taking taking towards it. But if you really read what he's writing, it should give us deep insight into the psychopathology of white people. I will stop there um, and allow someone else to speak. Hopefully I'll be able to touch our speak again later. Thank you so much. And I'll meet my line. I appreciate you. Yes, may I be here? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. Uh, it's actually, uh, the book is getting, you know, very, um, I would say, uh, in depth. You know, at first, uh, it's hard to uh, conceive this, but as the reading goes along and you look at his premises and, you know, how he's uh, forming this, it's, it's very uh, believable. And I'll start out with uh, <clears throat> when the author, uh, through 
uh, talking about the consumption of the enslaved uh, Smith, um, he shows that white hunger for black flesh and how sex coincides with the white code of honor, the self-glorification, which is feelings of superiority. In Southampton, Virginia, there's no memorial to commemorate Turner's life and his efforts to free his people. But can I still hear? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, let's see, but that last house that uh, uh, Nat Turner and his men uh, came to uh, has been, you know, designated with a sign in front of it. Now, uh, to this day, that there's a road named Blackhead Signpost Road in that particular area, a street named Hanging Tree Road. The fact that this still exists 185 years later, to me, uh, signifies the dedication that whites have in this war on black and non-white people. Uh, the town itself uh, is segregated. There's differences between blacks and whites even today, and we know that the differences is all negative for blacks. Page uh, 90, he talked about, even among the so-called well-meaning white abolitionists, the reality of the unmitigated black male violence and retribution conjured racist images of African cannibals engaged in human consumption. Now, if you contrast uh, the rhetoric of Turner as a monster uh, that created acts of violence and consumption. Well, contrast the way they were portraying <clears throat> Turner with their particular, with white act of violence and consumption that they perpetrated against black bodies. You can start to see uh, a pattern here. It, to the fact that uh, we can hardly believe what these authors, white authors, the way that they um, interpret what actually happened. Because when this uh, lady Dana Gage gives her account of what Sojourner True was saying in her speech, Ain't I a Woman? If you look at the footnotes, in the back of the book, a footnote 12 for chapter 3, you'll find that uh, there was another individual that was present at the meeting and heard the speech, and he was also a friend of Sojourner Truth, didn't mention uh, that phrase. So, which leads us to believe that uh, can't really believe what these abolitionists were saying. It looks as though they were more concerned with their gender than with the liberation of enslaved black people. And then when you 
look at the narratives that the slaves were writing about, you have to take under consideration that they couldn't accurately depict what was happening to them because of the socialization process. The slave couldn't really say his true feelings because he'd be punished for that. And they gave, I think they gave one instance of a slave um, that the slave master came up on. He, he didn't know was his own slave, and he asked him how he was being treated. And when the slave replied that he wasn't treated very well, and he was slow, sold off and never saw his family again, different uh, instances like that would uh, make the average uh, slave reluctant to express his genuine feeling. So in the uh, previous uh, uh, reading, we heard about slaves that said that they were happy with their slave masters, which was uh, nauseating. But that may have been a result of not being able to say your true feeling, to save what was expected to be said of you. And uh, I'd like to speak on mother hunger too, um, the lack of maternal care. Frederick Douglass only saw his mother about four or five times. She had to walk 12 miles one way to visit her son just to lay with him a few hours at night. Uh, she had to uh, probably uh, legend and beatings, you know, uh, leaving the plantation at night and walking that 12 miles still had to get up the next day and go to work. Uh, the fact that he didn't have that maternal care influenced him later on. And this may speak to the first caller's uh, question. When Frederick Douglass would speak, the audience being mostly white, white male, he was, he was so good at speaking and so intelligent that he would speak in a sense from a black female standpoint. And then uh, it would draw attention away from what he experienced personally as a slave, which I think that it's probably very likely that he probably was raped. And the fact that he witnessed his aunt being brutally raped while being a small kid and not having the uh, maternal care that he, that a normal child would have traumatized him. And the fact that his aunt uh, was probably kin to the uh, overseer or slave master that was raping him. You know, he put all that together. He knew he was kin to them, and his aunt was kin. So put two and two together with a small mind, he probably thought that he would be X. <clears throat> and um, 
Hang on one second. I just wanted to make sure we get our some of the other folks that dialed in, and we'll swing back to get the rest of your comments. Okay. All right. Sure. Uh, the caller at 7722, did you have commentary as well? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, good evening, everyone. Peace, greetings to the caller and to the host. I, I want to share a few few thoughts. I really do enjoy this portion on that topic as well. I think that it uh, it reveals a lot about what a lot of non-white people do not know about uh, Nat Turner and what, what transpired specifically relating to this book. Uh, I, I, the previous caller touched on a point I was going to ask. It was very interesting that the white authors, uh, some of them, I believe that the that Vincent Woodard talks about are from the present and some from the past as far as contemporary of, of Fred, Frederick Douglass and of that time period around the, the, the 19th century. And it always seems, as the, the author brings out sometimes, that they're, they're kind of providing cover. They don't, ever, they don't ever concede the fact that there might be some malice. There might be just some straight evil behind this, specifically when it came down to the fact of the myth of boiling down Nat Turner and using his, his boil down or the oil made from his body. Um, like why why would you come up with that myth out of all myths to come up with why would they do that and it, and it's very interesting that um my, my my spouse is from the the virgin islands and uh, my my family from west africa but it's very interesting how important castor oil is and we both use castor oil so i immediately while i was reading i immediately walked in the room and looked at the bottle of castor oil that we have i mean it, it's something that we use so i don't even you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg of maybe the reason why we even use that. It could have been just the use of this panthea from the 19th century that we've kind of picked up on. And I really thought about um, that using it. The scene about the hook in the kitchen was, I believe, that was his aunt, and he was watching her being tortured. Um, although I probably need to fight the urge, I'm drawing a lot of, I'm trying to draw a lot of connections to modern day behaviors that I, that I have seen and witnessed among white people. Um, don't want to get too much into to area eight, but I have experienced and seen a lot of um, white deviant behavior, sexual deviant behavior. And um, the scene regarding the hook in the kitchen was extremely uh, reminiscent of many scenes that I have witnessed. So as far as, you know, this, this, this feigned type of gratification that both parties are receiving out of it. But um, white people, they, what I'm trying to say, white people still enjoy this type of behavior. And although I'm not, again, I'm, the jury is out, or, or I'm not very sure whether it's appropriate to draw the conclusions um, to, the, uh, to, the, to the actual story which we're reading now to modern day, but that's something that I noticed, uh, the scenery and how white people enjoy that and, and want to make other uh, non-white people enjoy that type of behavior, which is very non-constructive and, in my opinion, uh, very deviant. And the last uh, thing that I wanted to bring up was just regarding the, um, the insinuation regarding Frederick Douglass and the sexual, um, whether him, him have been, having been sex, sexually abused. Um, it sure seems like Mr. Wooded is is kind of alluding to that, that he is alluding to the fact that he might have been um, uh, abused. And I mean, I, I, I could think of 
you know, just personally how difficult it would be for anyone to write about that type of subject. Um, I, though, feel that it is giving me a different image. It's giving me a different picture of Frederick Douglass as a much more complex. Uh, I have not read these biographies of his. However, the image that I have been painted was this extremely virile uh, black male who was, was a stalwart, but we forget that he was living within the decay um, and coming out of chattel slavery. So especially the, the instances of Kobe, the, the, the uh, short stories about Kobe they give. Um, I thank everyone for listening. I'll take my call as well. Uh, if other folks, I saw other hands. If other people have commentary, please do not wait till the last minute. Uh, we should have a good hmm, 30 minutes, maybe a little less than a half hour of time for folks to share. So if you have commentary you would like to offer, if you want to answer uh, Robin Wisconsin questions that he put out or comment on any of the other views that have been presented, Go ahead and get your hand up now. Uh, some of the notes that I took from this section uh, towards the end of chapter two, the portion that talks about Nat Turner, uh, where it says uh, whites regard Turner and local lore and memory as the murderer of whites and their babies as a twisted sexual deviant and as a depraved example of criminal insanity. That is uh, that projection again, where in an era where it's routine. And I mean, remembering from, uh, the American Slave Coast, written by the Sublets, they were on about a year ago this time. Uh, their book, they describe Virginia, Nat Turner's home, as the raping capital of this part of the world for black people during the antebellum period. That's what Virginia did, raping Thomas Jefferson, raping black people, enslaved black people, and will sell their offspring down to South Carolina and Georgia and Texas and make all our money. Some of that's covered in uh, uh, The Half Has Never Been Told. But for whites in that region to blame and label black people responding to the terrorism and sexual deviance that's been heaped on them and said, oh, yeah, he's a sexual deviant and he's crazy and criminally insane. Consistent pattern in the system. Uh, the next portion where they write, uh, it helps to know that during that time period, this is 19th century Turner's uh, insurrection, 1830s. White men associated honor and nobility with unspeakable acts of violence and consumption perpetrated against black bodies. I think that is the case today. That is the case forever. That right there. And that's one thing I really appreciate about this book. I think he has lots of sentences in the text that give like really like concrete right to the point uh, emphasis about what it means to be white right to it and I think that operates uh, today and you can even use the illustration that Dr. Curry mentioned at the beginning of the program with the young 16 year old black child being anally raped and killed by two adult white men you still see this uh, bonding and fraternity around white people killing and raping and consuming black people. This passage continues General Epps for example described the treatment of black persons as revolting inhuman and not to be justified and characterized by acts of atrocity perhaps the general had 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 in mind individuals like the following black man whom whites shot quartered and beheaded for no reason at all except that he knew nothing about the Turner insurrection he told him he didn't know anything about any insurrection they shot several balls through him quartered him and put his head on a pole of uh, put his head on a pole of the fork 
of the road leading to the court. This is no exaggeration if the Virginia newspaper may be taken as evidence. I thought that portion was important for so many reasons. I'll start at the bottom. Again, this notion that you're not believed as a black person, you step forward to Juana Brawley, whichever perspective you want to take, but not being believed when you report that white people are doing all manner of atrocious things to you, that you're being raped, plundered, whatever, and just not being believed. Uh, And you got to get a white source. The Virginia newspapers uh, seem to substantiate this claim. So, you know, maybe I'm not a lying nigger. Uh, the shooting balls through him reminded me of, uh, of a Welsing moment for sure uh, and the type of weaponry that whites create uh, to offset their fear of white genetic annihilation. Uh, I think this is the second week in a row that we've had uh, commentary about a black person being quartered uh, as a form of punishment uh, for some menial uh, mishap, uh, broke glass, just happened to be ignorant. I didn't know anything about you know this plot, so now I've got to be butchered and mutilated standard practice within the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, next portion, talking about the governor of Virginia, Governor Floyd, uh, described the Turner affair as leaving him with a bad taste in my mouth. Days later, he again used gastronomical metaphors to describe his visceral response to Turner's insurrection. Eleventh day, I hear nothing this morning from below. I do not feel so badly as yesterday. I had more appetite today and not so bad a taste in my mouth. I really, I think I said this last week, I really value him emphasizing and unpacking metaphors. I say this all the time. Really pay attention uh, for a myriad of reasons. Uh, Sometimes it can be people are employing metaphors. They don't know what they're talking about. Sometimes people are employing metaphors and they can be revealing more than they know just by what's being compared and uh, what forms of speech they are, what comparisons are being made in how they are trying to articulate or convey their thoughts really appreciate him taking time and just looking at the metaphors that are being used and why do we have all of these uh, food uh, and gastronomical references when we are talking about the abuse of Negras. Uh Let's see, next up. When they say uh, Reverend Edward Taylor was a New England practitioner whose dispensatory included remedies made from human blood, heart, flesh, and other parts. We're in, continuing in this segment where it says it was commonly thought that the best parts came from artificial mummies who had died a violent death. Uh, this, it just, it makes me think of uh, when we talk about the consumption of black people, when they make it a sport, they make it a hunt. Uh, they want the black person to be excited, make them afraid, chase them. Uh, run them down. Uh, I think Mr. Fuller talks about the, the fox hunt that they used to have uh, back, you know, century during this time period. Let's go get the foxes and hounds to go hunt down that Turner. Uh, and now it's, you know, oh, they're fighting back. We got to send out the SWAT. He had a gun. We got to go chase him down. Loving that sort of uh, just getting an adrenaline rush out of the practice of racism, white supremacy, and particularly it, it being all the more satisfying if the black person died a violent death, making a sport out of the practice of racism. Um, I really appreciated the portions where he states specifically white-inspired terror. I personally think that's a major uh, strategy that we should employ to consistently make it firm, make it clear what it means to be white. White terror, and then he comes back and does it again. He says, I'm speaking of white terror, he has it in parentheses. Uh, let's see. Next thing. Uh, attempts to suppress black accusations of white of the white appetite for and consumption of Turner. That consumption reveals too much, takes us too deep 
for the comfort of most into the interior reality of white males' hunger and the death drive they fixated upon the Negro. I would just put that in present tense. Again, it's passage, uh, sentences, portions like this that I really appreciate about the book, which is over and over, chapter after chapter. He gives you all the gory evidence. Bam. And then you put it hard in one sentence to really clarify what it means to be white. And I just say it needs to be on a continuum because you see these same behaviors right now. Black History Month 2017 in this, the, as he describes it, the interior reality of white males hunger and the death drive they fixated upon the Negro every day. Uh, let's see. In terms of Douglas, I thought a lot of this was fascinating. This moves into chapter three. Uh, Douglas depicts this role. Oh, let me back up and even give it a little more. I apply the framework of male effeminacy developed in the previous two chapters to Douglas himself alongside his heroic male identity. Douglas described himself as playing the role of male concubine and male daughter to the plantation system and to certain white male authority figures. Douglas depicts this role mostly as negative, but I focus on how from a reproductive procreative perspective, this role strikes a balance in his life. I have no idea what that means, uh, how this is. And this is, is some of that where, uh, I'm not sure. I can't say for sure in terms of what his, uh, sexual activity was, if he identified as homosexual activity. Uh, but this is where some of, uh, the confusion and just, it could just be a divergence in views from the author and, or the editors who put this book, uh, together. I see nothing balancing about being effeminate in a system of white supremacy. If you are a black male, I think the system, they attack, uh, black males being men. They attack black females being women. They prevent really, it's not just, uh, attack. Uh, so I don't see anything balanced uh, about that. I'm not even really sure, uh, what that means. I do think it is extremely important. This notion of effeminizing black males, uh, to put some longevity on this, that this has been a long running process, 200, 300, 400 years of deliberately effeminizing and attacking the masculinity of black males. I think Dr. Curry also mentions, uh, Thomas A. Foster's uh, piece on uh, the rape of black male slaves. That's also in the footnotes of some of his uh, works uh, to uh, Robin Wisconsin's question. I think that Frederick Douglass and many other enslaved black males and even present day black males, he specifically was raped and many others have been as well. Uh, I think he, in the book, I think he did do a good job of talking about how a lot of times Douglas and others spoke in code. They would not much like today would not speak directly to the sexual violence that they experienced from whites for whatever reasons. So I suspect that that to me, that seems logical that he may not have done that uh, as well. Uh, I just view that as a, as a standard part of being a victim of racism, white supremacy, but I thought he was abused and he just coded the way that he presented it. Uh, one other thing I'll get in and then uh, some other people that dialed in that we haven't heard from, I'll get them as well. Uh, just checking the footnotes in this book, which I would encourage people to do. So this is footnote 21 from chapter three. Uh, and I think I footnoted the exact portion where uh, this, yep, I did. So this uh, footnote is on page page 100 uh, of the text. It's right uh, before the sections that Rob highlighted in red. It's right before that. So uh, the whole portion about am I a man and interrogating what Sojourner Truth said and then what Frederick Douglass said, am I a man, am I a woman? Uh, so he says, each question informed the other. 
and as, a, and as questions rather than statements revealed a sense of gender instability both Douglas and Truth felt. We still do not know what to do with the reality of Truth's sexual molestation by one of her plantation mistresses or more broadly with the complex ways white women desired, hated, abused, and sexually lusted after black women on the plantation. That's footnoted. What does the footnote say for all of that? The footnote says... In Sojourner Truth, Painter argues that Sally Dumont, the slave mistress, was the person Truth had in mind when she obliquely referred to experiences of sexual abuse. Painter, and that would be Dr. Nell Irvin Painter, notes that then and still today it is easier to speak of black female abuse by white men than to speak of such abuse at the hands of white women. In the first novel, also an allegorical slave narrative, published by a black woman in America, Harriet Wilson's our nig all of the sexual all of the sexualized abuse perpetrated against the main character alfredo is done by the white mistress mrs belmont the narrator frequently described mrs belmont as excited and consumed by a dangerous passion as she performs punishments that mimic in textbook fashion the raping of black women in slave narratives a point that comes through in Wilson's tale is how difficult it was within the conventions of true womanhood and the sexual mores of the time to articulate the intensely erotic dynamics that could exist between a black woman and a white woman. Of course, in historical texts about black women in slavery, rape at the hand of the white male master is the only conceivable reality. That is footnote 21. It's on page 257. I thought that was one of the more important footnotes in the text. Might be a good idea to check those as we move through. Uh, Emmy, did you have commentary you wanted to share? Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Actually, this is probably better. I will be um, very quick. One of the things that stuck out to me in this reading of the text is um, as much as I've read and studied, I never knew about Frederick Douglass's um, sexual abuse. And what fascinates me about that the most is that, like when I think about us being victims, like a lot of times it's always like, well, we can't play the victim role and it happened then and you know, all that other kind of stuff that people will say. But I'm always fascinated by the withhold, the withholdment or like the withholding, excuse me, um, of information and the truth and what that does to a people. Like we're not even able to know, like our thinking is so controlled. And so we're unable to know exactly what happened because we weren't allowed to talk about it or when we read those texts, those things weren't emphasized and those type of things. And so I'm always fascinated by something that was like right in my face that I didn't know, like that I couldn't see. And it makes me even more sad because it's like, okay, the obvious things. And then there's all these underlayers that I, um, that I uh, am not able to see until it's, you know, brought to my face, which is why I'm so grateful for the cows. Just like when I realized I didn't have a definition for racism. Another thing was um, 
when I, I've watched a lot of vampire movies, a lot of zombie movies, and uh, not really so much on the werewolf movies, but I used to really like the like zombies and vampire movies. And in my thinking, I never placed, like I didn't realize that the vampire like really, really is like a symbolic abstraction for white people, which makes me really not scared, but it just, it's like, whoa, you know? And the thing, like, I remember interview with a vampire, like, you know, vampires are very cultured, um, civilized, so to speak. And so, you know, all the smiling in my face and looking at me, and I'm just like, that's a vampire. Like, I'm in training my mind to not be fooled by the smile. And that I think there was a call that said they didn't want to make any draws to the day. I say make as many uh, conclusions or connections, excuse me, connections between this book and the things you see today, because I don't think that it went anywhere. I think in that they're masterful in their ability to be deceiving. And so with that, it means it can't be blatant. It can't be obvious. It can't be, I can't look at it and know what I'm looking at. It has to look like something else when I look at it, but be something else underneath. And that's, I think what another level of refinement or that's what it might mean to be refined is to mask that grotesque way with a smile and policies and so things like that. And I think that, you know, when I think about what happened in like Rome and Greece and they had the Colosseum and what they would do in the Colosseum, I think that not every white person has to actually participate in it in order to be gratified from it. And so I think with the uh, explosion in real life media of the killing of black people, which I think they're able to get off, and I'm saying that intentionally, in the same way that they were able to get off by being in the stadiums. And that's something that the white woman participates in and the white male participates in, but also white children participated in too, as far as I understand, which I could be getting correct, but like, this is what it is. And the book just makes it so blatantly obvious. And in uh, Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation, uh, at the end, there's like a little piece where they mention it, but it would have been like fantastic. I um, mean, perhaps, he wasn't able to. I don't even know if you read this book, but that would have been great um, to have maybe like slides of images of the newspapers and like the um, heads on sticks or like that article and things like that, like right around the credits where they talk about what white people did with Turner's body. And to me, I, you know, I even feel that way with just like being touched since that's something I've always been talking about, like even just walking past me and just like lightly touching me. I feel like at this point you're consuming me and I don't know, like I want a theory on white psycho psychopathology, like who are, and they might just be vampires, but who are these people? Like what, what? Cause it just, and then the last thing I'll say before I get off is those so-called abolitionists, I think might even be worse than the Southerners because I think to the level that you are quote unquote genteel is like exponentially how depraved you are to you. 
because, you, you know what I mean, you'll go through so much to mask it. So I, I can, can totally see these northern people coming down to the south to do what all the southerners down, in a, down here were doing and then go back to the north and act like they didn't do it and that they're also about liberation and all this other kind of stuff for black people. And I feel like that that it was like, and even I would like to know how many northerners person purchased Nat Turner's oil or anything like that. Like, I don't think that oil just stayed in Southampton. As far as I know, his oil could have been sent all the way to Europe for big, big money. What they did with it, I actually, and I'm going to say this, I feel like they might have used it for lube. Like, I don't think they used it to cook food and all that kind of stuff. They probably used it for, like, just put, like, literally just ingesting it or rubbing it on their bodies and stuff like that. Like, something, like, whoa. I'm good. Thank you. Mm. Uh, I know... Mr. Demi, I think he had other comments, and uh, Roz may have as well. Other folks were just checking to see if folks have anything else they want to get in. Uh, just my very quick comment. This does remind me a little bit. Uh, Dr. Manning Marble, the text that was published uh, that he's credited with writing that came out posthumously. posthumously uh, I think some of his research assistants or what have you put it together. And it kind of cast that, uh, well, maybe Minister Malcolm was homosexual and maybe he dabbled in that and maybe he kind of presented in a coded manner. This text reminds me of that a little bit since Mr. Woodard passed after uh, this book, or excuse me, he passed before this book was published. Uh, and this kind of notion that, well, you know, maybe... Fred Douglas, maybe he wasn't this, you know, virile man that we think about. Uh, maybe his gender identity was a bit more fluid. Maybe he wasn't as vested in this serious notion of black masculine. It reminds me of that a little bit, so I'm suspicious. I have to think about that a lot. And I thought that was a really important point as well about <clears throat> Douglas recognizing these same racist tendencies of paternalism and then looking at him like a little child. Uh, him recognizing some of those same tendencies and that came out in that PBS documentary from a couple years back that when some of these white abolitionists the good white people when they thought that you know he wasn't staying in a child's place they got upset and passed around stories that he was sleeping with a white woman in this era he could I mean this is like a hundred years before Emmett Till so he easily could have been killed anywhere Philadelphia uh, Boston, wherever, passing rumors that this nigger is shacking up with a white woman. That came from his well-meaning northern abolitionist friends when he, you know, was getting a bit too independent. Uh, the other folks have commentary they wanted to get in. We have about six minutes left. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, there were a couple of um, other points I wanted to touch on from in the book. Um, there was on on page... On page 99, he writes, uh, white men did not have to own up to their subtle phallic references and anxieties and their desires for a, nurt for a nurturing, consumable black male phallic object. And what I find very interesting about that is um, it just reminds me of nearly fully discussing Jeffrey Dahmer being the quintessential example of what white supremacy would look like, even trumping Hitler, um, because of the, the life that Jeffrey Dahmer uh, exhibited and lived. Um, also, the fact that um, it just makes me think that there's a super fetish amongst white men to consume our genitals. And because of the history of the castration and ingesting and even saving our, our genitals and passing them down as uh, heirlooms, it made me think when uh, you look at a lot of rap artists, I used to rhyme back in the days too, and we would grab our genitals regularly. 
And I think that when I used to always wonder where did that gesture come from amongst black males, I just never asked anyone. I just always wondered. And now I think I got the answer. I think it's because it's almost like a way of proving we still have our quote unquote balls. So we grab our testicles and it's almost like a masculine symbol that, yeah, they didn't castrate me yet. They, did, they haven't castrated me yet, but it's subconsciously encoded in that gesture. And I, that, this book really helped to bring that um, to the fore in my mind. Um, also, he wrote something on page, oh, on page uh, 102, oh, not 102, uh, page, oh, page uh, 104. He says, uh, Douglas, uh, Douglas, first, the first rules of social grammar, inversion, and sub, excuse me, uh, here we go. Oh, there it is. Sophia's gesture towards teaching the rudiments of the, lang- of the language and, and her husband's negative response teach Douglas the first rules of the social grammar, inversion, and subterfuge. He will apply these tools when he goes on to trick young boys into teaching him English by challenging their intellects, exchanging food for grammar lessons, and mimicking the letter system used to mark crates at the shipyard. Moreover, in the second narrative, My Bondage and My Freedom, Douglas reveals that his mother can read and attributes his love of reading and the creative means of acquiring literacy to her. I am happy to attribute, he says, any love of letters I possess, not to my admitted Anglo-Saxon paternity, but to the native genius of my sable, unprotected, and uncultivated mother. And I found that that was a great example of um, his homage to his mother and um, I guess a subtle homage to, the, to his mother, Hunger, but also it just his genius in attributing his intelligence to his mother because they've actually proven that genetically that male children specifically get their intelligence and it's directly inherited from their mother. So um, he knew something on a deep level that science has actually confirmed not too long ago. So I just find that to be just very uh, powerful, just in the loose to his intelligence. And just the fact that he would have been able to do the things that he did, stand up in front of white men and, and, and say the things that he said, um, and suffer through the things that he suffered just gives a high respect for who he is as an ancestor. And, uh, thank you. I need my line. Mr. Dummy Ford, did you have anything else you were going to add? Uh, yes, quickly. Uh, just a phrase. When they were talking about uh, why behead him and secretly preserve his skull, or why preserve his uh, liquid flesh, uh, when he was so hated and feared. The statement is, ironically, we find the suspicion of the folk validated and archived in the Eurocentric hegemony and legacy. I found that profound because of the word hegemony. And uh, one last thing that I had to say was concerning the fact that uh, slaves could be killed at any time for any reason, uh, and which speaks today, uh, the same thing could happen. A 60-year-old Asian man was shot and killed while playing Pokemon Go in Virginia, and a 24-year-old was shot in the back and the head in a housing unit in Durham, uh, North Carolina, all recent events. I mute my line. Thanks, sir. For sure. Yes, sir. If you can get it in in thirty seconds. Uh, yeah, real quickly. Um, the reason I was uh, asking about the um, Frederick Douglass is because um, I had a different uh, picture of him as well in my mind, and um, 
not that it really changed it so much, but um, a male uh, being raped um, is not an easy thing for me to grasp. And um, I've been to prison before. And, uh, yeah, it's just like, it's, man, it's hard. It's hard. And uh, great commentary from Demry for I think the book is really going into depth. And thank you. I'll be my line. We will pick up on the second audio segment. We're still in Chapter 3. Picking back up with the legend, Mr. Frederick Douglass. Context of White Supremacy, the Delectable Negro. Audio segment number two. Neil Dyer. Scholars have had a challenging time deciphering Douglass's public letter written to his former slave master, Thomas Auld, in 1848. William S. McFeely, the Douglass biographer, refers to the letter as one of the strangest pieces of literature of American history. What makes this letter so strange is the fact that Douglass speaks vicariously through the voice and body of a young white daughter. Added to this, he alludes to a relationship, very intimate, erotic relationship, between himself and his former master in this female voice. One gets a sense of Douglas and his former master as his strange natural enemies on one hand, and on the other, as intimate sharers of a deep, binding secret. When one thinks about this letter written by Douglas as a coded way of speaking about his own rape, his own body through female metaphor, it does not appear strange at all. Instead, it serves as an example of how Douglas's overt grammatical gestures were oftentimes informed by latent, inverted references to his own sex and sexualized treatment. The occasion for writing the letter is the anniversary of Douglas's emancipation. Celebrating himself in his own venue, the North Star newspaper, Douglas gives his own synopsis of his liberation and what it means to him, three years removed from a life of bondage, addressing all of it in 1848. He writes, Sir, the long and intimate, though by no means friendly, relation which unhappily subsisted between you and myself leads me to hope that you will easily account for the great liberty which I now take into in addressing you in this open and public manner. I have selected this day on which to address you, because it is the anniversary of my emancipation. How, let me ask, would you look upon me, were I, some dark night, in company with a band of hardened villains, to enter the precincts of your elegant dwelling, and seize the person of your own lovely daughter, Amanda, and carry her off from your family, friends, and all the loved ones of her youth. Make her my slave, compel her to work, and take her wages. More, and still more horrible, leave her unprotected, a degraded victim to the brutal lust of fiendish overseers who would pollute, blight, and blast her fair soul, rob her of all dignity, destroy her virtue, and annihilate in her person all the graces that adorn the character of virtuous womanhood. I ask how would you regard me if such were my conduct? What has struck many as immediately strange is Douglas's slipping between speaking I 
and speakery, speakerly her, essentially his easy transition between his black male body and voice and the voice and body of a young white plantation mistress. In particular, for McFeely, most strange is the fantasy of the rape of Amanda, the daughter of Thomas and Lucretia, whom Douglas remembered both as a child all cherished and as one whom had been kind of a young friend. Others, reading against the grain of the letter, have hinted that Amanda is a metaphor for Douglas's own ravishing at the hands of white men. I agree with this perspective and feel that what Douglas attempts to convey through his letter are the, are the powerful ways in which he and all share a union in body and soul, the fact that they share a terrible calamity that has made them both kin. For Douglas, hypothetically speaking, Ald's daughter, such acts committed against him by Ald and other men of his class would qualify as acts of incest. Keeping the letter to Ald in mind and returning to the narrative, we find a direct correlation between the sacrifice of the daughter to the brutal lust of fiendish overseers and the rape of Douglas at the hands of the slave-breaker Covey. A short time after being sent to Covey, Douglas is given the responsibility of herding the oxen. While standing at the gate to Covey's plantation, the oxen grow excited and rush through the gate, tearing their cart to pieces and almost crushing Douglas against the gate. A livid Covey discovers his demolished property. In his anger, he orders Douglas to strip down nude in preparation for a beating. He ordered me to take off my clothes. I made him no answer. He repeated his order. I still made him no answer, nor did I move to strip myself. Upon this, he rushed at me with his fierceness of a tiger, tore off my clothes, and lashed me till he had worn out his switches, cutting me so savagely as to leave marks visible for a long time after. Douglas makes much of the pleasure and excitement that Kobe receives from such seasoning rituals. The suggestive nudity, the tearing into flesh, the physical climaxing, and the wearing out of lash and clothing all suggest a type of sexual violation. In my bondage and my freedom. References to ravishment recur. In another instance, among many, Kobe tears into Douglas even more viciously, causing Douglas to proclaim, Had I escaped from a den of tigers, I could not have looked worse. After this beating, Douglas escapes from Kobe with the intention of going to Ald, showing him the horrific proof of his condition and seeking his intercession. I had begun to hope that my master would now show himself in a nobler light than I had before seen him. But I was disappointed. I had jumped from a sinking ship into the sea. I had fled from the tiger to something worse. In this passage, we have a direct correlation between the master who prostitutes his daughter to the brutal lust of fiendish overseers and all of himself. Whereas Kobe is true to his nature, bloodthirsty and predatory by virtue of his vocation and temperament, all is an altogether different animal. The letter makes clear that what makes all even more reprehensible, more immoral than Kobe, 
is the fact that there is a blood tie, a clandestine kinship that binds him to Douglas. Kobe's crime is rape, but all is incest. He takes the ultimate pleasure and gain from Douglas's violation, the breaking of his slave reinforcing his genteel southern standing, his authority and affluence among plantation owning peers. Kobe makes delight in sport of Douglas. He tortures him at least once a week for six months. The reader has to but repeat in his own mind once a week the scene in the woods where Kobe subjected me to merciless lash. We have a true idea of my bitter experience there during the first period of the breaking process through which Mr. Kobe carried me. Following this passage, and in numerous places throughout Douglas' narrative, he insinuates that much worse than what can be described occurred on Kobe's plantation. I have no hope, he admits, to repeat such separate transactions. Such narration would fill a volume much larger than the present one. I aim only to give the reader a truthful impression of my slave life, without unnecessarily affecting him with harrowing details. Up to this point, I have suggested that sexual violation is metaphorically present in Douglas's narrative, but I think it important to consider that Douglas may have in fact been literally raped. For what could be more harrowing in description than the blood-soaked scene that he describes? What details missing from all three volumes of his autobiographies could fill additional volumes? A genre of short story and novels about slaves that became popular at the end of the 18th century is implicitly referenced in Douglas's narratives. In this tradition of writing, Europeans and white Americans graphically depicted the rape of enslaved males through language and metaphors similar to those used in Douglas's narrative. Joseph Lavallee's Le Necom et le Plus Le Blanc the Negro as there are few white men, is a perfect example of this tradition. La Vallée, a French Montesquieu, published Le Negre in 1790. That same year, other authors translated the text into English and serialized it in magazines in England and the United States. The protagonist of La Vallée's novel, Itanaco, is a West African man captured by French slavers off the Gold Coast of West Africa and taken into slavery. Lavalier's text was a highly sexualized treatment of the African and the European colonial relation. Ship hands consistently remarked upon Itanoko's physicality and imagined themselves betting the African. His nakedness and the size of his genitalia are noted. Itanoko engages in a romantic friendship with the ship captain's son. The ship captain intends to sell Itanoko into a position of sexual service, but before selling him, cannot restrain the desire to sample the slave himself. Itanoko describes Urban, the white slaver, as a ravisher, a perfidious ravisher, who was struck by my comeliness. Urban feels compelled to violate what is most sacred among men. Itanoko describes his rape in animal-like metaphors, saying, I bore resemblance to a man, 
who, weary with struggling with a tiger that threatened his life, would fall into a voluptuous sleep between the clutches of the monster. John Ceylant described Itanoko as a prototype for the black man who appeared between 1790 and 1820 in anti-slavery narratives, essays, and poems. Deserving benevolence but deny it by his white masters, this sentimentalized poor Negro, he clarifies, on American soil, became an eroticized friend, echoing the homoeroticism of classical martial virtue, as well as gesturing towards 19th century blackface and its interracial homoerotics. Douglas, as disenfranchised friend and one abolitionist ally with, definitely writes as a sentimentalized poor Negro. Furthermore, Itanoko's allusions to struggling with a tiger cast light on the sexual implications of similar details in Douglas' narrative. Even if Douglas did not read La Vallée's story, though it is possible that he did, either in American serialized form or during his time spent in England with Garrison. Abolitionists read the story in serialized form in U.S. magazines. Douglas wrote to a community of readers on both sides of the Atlantic that would have implicitly understood his allusions to that most unspeakable outrage, male rape. Furthermore, it was common within the U.S. sentimental tradition to refer to rape through animal metaphors, such as tigers and wolves. In Red Rock, Thomas Nelson Page describes the rape of a white woman by a black man as a single tiger spring, as black claws sinking into a soft white throat. Abolitionists and the larger educated American readership would have immediately recognized Douglas' numerous references to rape and had been able to read between the lines in the narrative to ascertain that Douglas had probably been raped by Kobe or other males in the plantation community. Hazel Carden makes a useful point regarding how we think about rape on and off the plantation and at different moments in American history. Rape should not be regarded as transhistorical mechanism of women's oppression, but as one that acquires specific political or economic meanings at different moments in history. Carver refers here to the need to distinguish the political import of black women raped on plantations from black women raped during the Reconstruction era in the South as a means of economic and social control. Her statement, though, applies also to the subject of male rape. We have tended to regard rape as happening only to biological females. In black uplift discourse, the phallus and castration of the phallus are always emphasized. Yet what does it mean that Douglas, reticently in his first narrative and more directly in his second and third narratives and in his letter to Ald, calls our attention to the subject of male rape? I find that what we get, in part, through Douglas's depictions of rape is his understanding of rape as definitionally linked to a culture of consumption. From Hester being tempered and flesh-tendered in the Anthony kitchen to perpetrators depicted as tigers and wolves, Douglas emphasizes how rape and sexual violence are means of satiating a cultivated white appetite for black flesh. 
Southern slavery apologist George Fitzhugh explained the political economy of slave consumption in the following manner. The use of an article is only a proper subject of charge when the article is consumed in the use. For this consumption is the consumption of the labor of the lender or hirer and is the exchange of equal amounts of labor for each other. Thought of as an object of labor, as labor itself in the mind of many slave owners, the slave could be completely consumed with no moral repercussions. Rape in this context serves as an index for a larger culture of consumption, the sex act being a means to take self from the slave and ritualistically consume this taken self. This subtext of sex and consumption lends an entirely different meaning to constant references to female rape in black male writings. Surely it tells us something about the nature and confines of black masculinity in the 19th century, specifically about the impossibility of translating black male sexual abuse into a usable political currency. The raped black female emasculated black male, diet aside, black men among themselves held each other to a strict code of masculinity that entailed never being sexual objects and defining their masculine relationship to one another through black female violation. Writing to the tribe of black husbands and fathers in Walker's appeal to the colored citizens of the world, David Walker implored, Oh, my colored brethren all over the world, when shall we rise from this death-like apathy and be men? Walker implicitly defined black manhood as the ability to protect wives and mothers from rape and other forms of abuse. For men like Douglas and Walker, the subjects of female rape and the larger institution of slavery linked implicitly to the issue of social consumption. Walker never lived as a slave. He was born to a free mother and an enslaved father in Wilmington, North Carolina. Yet he understood slavery as fundamentally a system of appetite and consumption. In Walker's appeal, he writes, They keep us miserable now, and call us their property. But some of them will have enough of us by and by. Their stomachs shall run over with us. They want us for their slaves and shall have us to their fill. For Walker, social consumption equal to social death, a death-like apathy. The outcome of black persons continually fed into the glut of slavery is that they will cease to exist, literally, psychologically, and spiritually. Already in their death-like apathy, Walker finds that black men have faded from their lives and from natural agency. Walker invokes the female body as womb and vessel of racial continuity, subtly connecting this aspect of black female anatomy to social consumption. Visit that we cannot help the whites murdering our mothers and our wives, he says. He ties racial continuity to the female anatomy. Black male rape, the particulars of black male consumption, and black male reproductive capacity do not figure into Walker's cosmos. In this worldview, the black woman symbolizes body and sex, and the black male embodies the opposite values, reason, action, 
and virility. The black male does not have a reproductive capability, rather capacity, and he also has no strongly defined interiority. Douglas writes within a similar closed circuit, alluding to himself as erotically consumed but finally positioning himself outside this dynamic through his notorious battle with Covey, his acquired literacy, and his eventual escape from slavery. The letter written to Ald and Douglas's description of ravishment at the hands of Covey, though disrupt this genealogy and urge us to rethink this idea of the feminine as external to black male experience, might be allusions to himself as daughter and as sexually vulnerable be indicators of a regenerative capacity and ability to regenerate self that elided the larger culture of sexual and psychic consumption? Along this same line, might Douglas have revealed at the same time that he concealed how his master related to him and saw him as a daughter or as a feminized sexual conquest? Whites were fond of referring to him as the only perfectly pronounced and complete specimen in the world of his color, kin, and kind. As a youth, the race leader carried a newspaper clipping around that described him in romantic terms as a uniquely American creature, a natural outcome of the faded American experiment. Mount Caucasus and the mountains of the moon would join with our Indian wilderness to mix the strain of blood from free races in his veins and produce a peculiar individuality with no antecedent or copy of his traits evoking at once savagery, the feminine allure of the natural world, and the danger of colonization of occupying a foreign territory, this article served as a reminder that Douglas's masculinity was an open-ended question that could be just as easily deployed by the state and the abolitionist cause. This discussion picks up many of the themes of male rape that I earlier elucidated, the ways in which and reasons that black male rape has remained a categorical impossibility and therefore impossible to speak about. On political and rhetorical levels, the subject of black male rape has always implied much more than the sex act or sexual preference. Douglas's letter and in his personal narrative his abuse under Covey conveyed the subject of male rape as layered through with issues of black-slash-white kingship, gender variance and ambiguity, and the conundrum of same-sex reproduction. Naturally, when we have thought about the rape of black women during slavery, we have thought in terms of progeny or reproductive capacity our limited concepts of black male biology and interiority have inhibited our thinking on the topics of black male emotional and erotic life, and more specifically, black men having the ability to generate life. A part of what I'm urging and I will reinforce in the next section of this chapter is that we expand our notions of black experience and cultural formation to include black men as agents of reproduction, 
sexual subjectivity, and effeminate values, among other categories of experience. Mapping Mother Hunger In the final phase of this chapter, I want to dwell more fully upon the idea of the black male interior. The themes of emotional, psychic, and spiritual hunger have historically constituted female domains of experience. Within 19th century rhetoric, men do not speak, at least overtly, in terms of hungering, needing to be filled emotionally or otherwise. It is like an undiscovered, mysterious land, this region of black male interiority, that we suspect exists, but that we have little concrete evidence of, few artifacts with which to verify its existence. In Douglas's writings, mother loss and mother hunger, the desire for the mother and the desire for an intimate familial touch, to know one's origins and tribal legacy, serve as emotional guideposts that help us to understand where and how Douglas hungered and from where within himself he transformed this potentially self-consuming hunger. In my final analysis, I read this mother hunger beyond the physical loss of his mother as a fecund place within Douglas's self from which he gives birth to the promise of the Republic, himself as masculine icon, and all of the emotional and psychic hungers that he carries out of slavery. Although he sees very little of her, Douglas's mother leaves an imprint on his emotions and memory that will later permeate and shape his masculine identity and internal landscape. In the narrative, he recalls that in spite of the risk of death and the threat of potential beatings, his mother frequently traveled miles to visit him at night. She made her journeys to see me in the night, traveling the whole distance on foot after the performance of her day's work. She was a field hand, and a whipping is the penalty of not being in the field at sunrise, unless a slave has special permission from his or her master on the contrary, a permission which they seldom get. As an infant, Douglas cannot be aware of the hardships and fatigue that his mother undergoes to be with him. The four or five times that he sees her, he feels only her warm comfort. They communicated very little during these nightly rituals. She was with me in the night. She would lie down with me and get me to sleep, but long before I wake, she was gone. And long before Douglas could awaken as an adult man to the great pains and obstacles his mother overcame to see him, she dies. Death soon ended what little we could have while she lived, and with it, her hardships and suffering. She died when I was about seven years old, on one of my master's farms, near Lee's Mill. Adding to the pain of this loss is the fact that Douglas was not allowed to be present during her illness, at her death, or burial. A pattern of loss and unrequited need is set in Douglas. Plantation culture and masters cultivated this emotional and natal hunger. Such hunger, arguably more than physical acts of torture, conditioned slaves, psych psyches, and bodies for larger acts of social and literal consumption. In the narrative, Douglas describes how he, his sister Eliza, and his aunt Priscilla were kept in a state of perpetual hunger and starvation. 
a great many times we have poor creatures been nearly perishing with hunger. When food in abundance lay moldering in the safe and smokehouse, and our pious mistress was aware of the fact, and yet that mistress and her husband would kneel every morning and pray to God, would bless them in basket and in store. In addition to starving Henny, Ald would frequently tie her up and whip her as precourse to taking his meals. I have known him to tie her up early in the morning and whip her before breakfast, leave her, go to his store, return at dinner, and whip her again, cutting her in the places already made raw with his cruel lash, recalls Douglas. What makes Henny so delectable to the master is the fact of her being almost helpless. Henny has no parents to protect and look out for her. Burned during a childhood accident, she has little use of her hands. Her state of deprivation slakes Ald's appetite and causes him to choose her, above all others, as the object of his morning and evening meal-taking rituals. Later in life, Douglas would experience a no less cruel form of starvation conditioning at the behest of Miss Lucretia Auld, the female head of the plantation. Often Miss Auld forced Douglas to sing for his food beneath her bedroom window. When pretty severely pinched by hunger, I had a habit of singing, which the good lady very soon came to understand as a petition for a piece of bread. When I sung under Miss Lucretia's window, I was very apt to get well paid for my music. Making Douglas perform in the age-old role of the romantic singer, Miss All seemed to imagine him courting her or titillating her with his hungering pleas. She no doubt took pleasure in such remonstrations, which she encouraged and rewarded with food. Many on the plantation implicitly understood this culture of hunger and deprivation as it was acted out in daily routines. Aunt Katie, the cook on Anthony's plantation, would frequently punish Douglas for a slight or an offense by making him go all day without food. Douglas would often fight the dog for scraps of food and bake stolen pieces of dry corn in the fire. Such acts of starvation wounded Douglas most deeply in his heart and soul. He writes of trying to keep his spirits up, but eventually going out behind the kitchen wall to cry. Surprising Aunt Katie one day, Douglas' mother visits and witnesses her starving him. His mother had words for Katie. That night, he said, I learned as I had never learned before that I was not only a child, but somebody's child. I was grander upon my mother's knee than a king upon his throne. For Douglas, the worst starvation involved being emotionally cut off from and made to hunger for his mother's love and care. His mother literally and spiritually saves him from self-consumption by affirming and feeding his sense of self. For that was the danger and underlying intention of the culture of consumption, to imprint slaves so deeply with hunger that they came to relate to themselves as essentially commodities and to consume themselves with a litany of soul-devouring thought and behaviors reinforced by the master's hungers and tastes.
despite the oppressive intentions of masters who facilitated this culture of hunger. Enslaved persons often found the will to invert this structure, using their own hunger as a means of resistance and survival. The graphic example of Lavinia Bell conveys a sense of hunger as the will to survive. As punishment for running away from the plantation, Bell's master leaves her to hang in a tree by wire threads that cut into her flesh. She suffers starvation and the devouring presence of bird and other animals of prey. After days left in this condition, Belle makes a strategic, strategic choice. She attempts to tear out her eyes and eat them. Douglas experiences some survivalist aspects of hunger as tied to the memory of and loss of his mother. Mother hunger informed his relationship with white male authority figures and heads of state. In the context of this hunger, white men took on maternal significances and roles in Douglas's life. This deep yearning for the feminine in some instances brought the same out of Douglas, who depicted himself and the heroic male figure as giving birth to the values and central tenets of the Republic. Operating out of a essentially feminine practice of survival, Douglas turns a potentially devouring legacy of slavery, an emotional state of loss and longing, into a self that is gender ambiguous and imbued with a regenerative capacity. One of the last places one might expect to find residues of Douglas's mother loss and child need would be in his adult relationship to white men. From the mythic battle with Kobe on, Douglas would have had would have us believe that he approaches and quickly passes beyond the temporal and psychic territory of slavery. But even at the end of the narrative, as Douglas intently pours over issues of the abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator, and prepares himself to enter fully into the abolitionist speaking circuit, he admits, I felt myself a slave, and the idea of speaking to white people weighed me down. Nine years later, white abolitionists would oppose Douglas's wish to start his own paper, referring to him as a slave, assuming to instruct the highly civilized people of the North. These contemporary eruptions of slavery differed from the personal, sacred ways that Douglas carried slavery in his heart and mind. In a letter written to Harriet Tubman in 1868, Douglas refers to her and John Brown as consigned to his sacred memory of slavery. The sacred memory of slavery arose from a tender place in Douglas connected to his mother. Remarking on the death of his mother and the fact that he was denied permission to attend her funeral in My Bondage and My Freedom, he stated that scenes of sacred tenderness around the deathbed never forgotten and which often arrest the vicious and confirm the virtuous during life must be looked for among the free, though they sometimes occur among the slaves. It has been a lifelong standing grief to me that I knew so little of my mother and that I was so early separated from her. This sacred maternal memory is connected to feelings of safety. The relieving of the slave child suffering and the longed for home space. 
when he felt in this way towards white male allies, such as Garrison, John Brown, and President Abraham Lincoln, Douglas usually also romanticized these men, describing them as perfect examples of beauty. Douglas reenacts this need for home and safety in the life and times of Frederick Douglass. Approximately 10 years after Douglas had bested the brutal Cody, the race leader reaches yet another milestone in his quest for masculine identity. President Abraham Lincoln invites him to a party at the executive mansion in honor of his re-election. Douglas feels overwhelmed with the presence of the elite there and enthralled by the power of his historic moment. He writes, I had for some time looked upon myself as a man, but now in this multitude of the elite of the land, I felt myself a man among men. Although under much different circumstances, this is another instance from Douglas's life when the presence of white men, of white male power and civilization, bring on an epiphany in the race leader. This newly discovered sense of manhood is only magnified by the presence of the white female friend, Miss Dorsey, who has agreed to accompany him on this journey. Hand in arm, the black Douglas and the white Miss Dorsey approach the entrance to the White House. At the entrance, Douglas's momentary reverie quickly shatters. The policemen stationed at the door to the president's mansion inform him that they are to admit no persons of his color and just as abruptly take him by his arm and order him to stand back. Suddenly, Douglas is outside. No longer a man among men, the officers, as policing extensions of the state, remind him of his nigger social status. No wonder the black man he invited refused his invitation. Used to such treatment from whites in low and high places, they did not look forward to such discomfiture as they described it. Undaunted by the officer's racism, Douglas and his ally refuse to leave. A passerby recognizes Douglas and rushes within to inform President Lincoln of his guest detainment at the door. Lincoln immediately sends word to allow Douglas entrance to the mansion. Douglas and his companion are escorted into the spacious east room of the president's mansion. Douglas is taken aback by the luxuriousness of the scene. The bounty and plenty reflected in the architecture, the drink, the suited and gowned personages, the food and the fraternity. He recalls a scene of such elegance such as in this country I never witnessed before. Lincoln restores Douglas' masculinity and Douglas in turn responds with a description of Lincoln as rising like a mountain pine high above all the others gathered in that East Room. Seeing Lincoln stirs deep feelings in Douglas. Lincoln counters his feelings of outsiderhood, of isolation, with his grand simplicity and home-like beauty. Lincoln's eyes and mouth moved Douglas to poetic description. His eyes had in them the tenderness of motherhood, and his mouth and other features the highest perfection of a genuine manhood. Douglas's childhood dreams and maternal hunger are mapped onto the larger American dream and the White House as home. Longing after and eulogizing Lincoln's maternal bosom, 
Douglas asks, what are sweet of peace? What are visions of the future? Like his very own laboring mother, Douglas finds in Lincoln, Lincoln's face a blending of suffering with patience and fortitude. Douglas even romanticizes the president's lips, imagining them as perfect, aesthetically pleasing, and the most genuine manhood. The most genuine specimens of manhood. Uh, the last sentence, make sure we get that in. Douglas even romanticizes the president's lips, imagining them as perfect, aesthetically pleasing, and the most genuine specimens of manhood. Mm-hmm. And we will stop there. We'll pick up. So we're still in chapter three. Uh, it's about maybe six pages left in chapter three. We'll pick up there for next Friday. Uh, folks would like to participate. We have about 30 minutes left. The number to dial 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six. If you would like to participate, all the folks who have a hand up line should be open. Please do not wait till the last minute. If you think you have a comment or something you would like to share on what we've heard from the book this week, go ahead, dial in now and get your hand up. Uh, everyone who's with us, your line should be open. Please proceed. Yes, sir. Second audio sec, um, session. Um, I have a new understanding for chattel slavery. I'll begin with that uh, first thing that stood out, page 106, where he states, In his anger, orders Douglas to strip down no in preparation for a beating. He ordered me to take off my clothes. I made him no answer. He repeated his order. I still made him no answer, nor did I move to strip myself. Upon this, he rushed me with the fierceness of a tiger, tore off my clothes, and lashed me until he had worn out his switches. Cutting me so savagely leaves marks for a visible long time after that. Douglas makes much of the pleasure and excitement that Covey receives from such seasoning rituals. Uh, next thing that stood out, page 107, um, <clears throat> I had begun to hope that my master would now show himself in a nobler light than I had seen, than I had before seen him. Um, but I was disappointed. I went from a sinking ship into sea, and um, that stood out um, as something that <clears throat> we as victims still do um, present day, um, looking for the good white people. Um, next thing, same page, this is a question um, that I'll take when I'm done with my commentary. Um, it says, the breaking of his slave reinforcing his genteel g-e-n-t-e-e-l southern standing i was looking for clarification on that word specifically genteel um 
next thing, he tortures him at least once a week for six months. Moving right along to page 111. And be man, walker, implicitly defined black manhood as the ability to protect wives and mothers from rape and other forms of abuse made me think of Dr. Welsing. Um, page oh, so much, so much. Page one twelve, uh, the mother hunger. Um, I had never heard that term before. Um, the desire for the mother, the desire for intimate uh, female, uh, female touch, feminine touch, to know one's origins and tribal legacy. Um, now this mother hunger uh, stands out to me um, because um, I think that along with myself, um, a lot of other black males experience the same thing today. Um, my mother um, has been committed to crack cocaine since uh, she was 14 years old uh, from the victimization that um, she endured uh, as a child from the system of white supremacy. Um, so I'm alone. I don't have a mother. I don't have a father. Um, yeah. um, moving right along. And um, page 113, and the whipping is the penalty of not being in the field at sunrise. And that stood out because they always say, quote, unquote, niggas always late. And um, it seems like that has a deeper meaning. Um, and pray, the same page, I'm kind of scattered. I'm trying to move along and save time. And pray that God would bless them in basket and in store. And this when he was talking about you know, they starving, food everywhere, and then these white people get down, kneel and pray to God that he blessed them, basket in store, <laughs> their religion of racism, white supremacy. Thank you for taking the call. I'm my line. Other folks have uh, commentary? We're malingering. Other folks have commentary if you have a hand up. Can I be there? Yes, ma'am. So, um, I feel the same way. I remember when I first heard the term mother hunger in the book earlier on, and it stuck out to me as well. I think that it goes, that I think it's the same for the black female children as well, that we um, hunger for our mother's love and affection and kindness. Um, it might be a little different in like what the male might desire from the mother and what the female might desire, but I think both the black female and black male child both crave and desire something from the mother. And I think that white racism, white supremacy has done a great job at making our mothers incapable of being gentle and kind and nurturing to us, whether for, for a myriad of reasons. Um, for myself, my mother is just always very busy and always trying to make sure that things are taken care of so that doesn't leave any time like to, to be very nurturing, especially when I was um, like a baby. Like she, didn't, she had two weeks before she had to deploy after she had me. And white people know what that does 
to children. They know. Like, white people are master deceivers and masterful psychologists. And they've had centuries to study what happens when you do certain things to people or deprive them of certain things, like even the food. Uh, my stomach dropped at the part where the woman tried to eat the her eyes because she was being starved. And I think that, it, you know, because I think I go through wave cycles where I say all white people, racist, vampires, that's it. And then I kind of, like, regress a little bit. And I'm like, well, is it all of them? Like, is it, you know what I mean? Is that really what it is? And I kind of oscillate between the two. At that moment, solidified it. That's it. You know what I'm saying? Like, impossible. I don't care. That's it. There's nothing else to talk about. Like, this is who, what white people are. And I know that because what, when I see one record, I know that there's a lot more. And it just means that it didn't get recorded. So, yeah. And uh, I still, the book is about white people uh, and black male rape and the homosexualizing. It's so intense for me, I really don't even have words to, to describe, like, what it feels like to now have information to back up what I'm looking at. A lot of people will talk about the Willie Lynch letter and say, well, you know, they knew they could do this and this is what would happen for centuries. And... I mean, to me, it's the exact same thing. Like, when I walk on campus, I see a lot of black males who carry purses and wear makeup and all this other kind of stuff, and my heart really goes out. Um, and I think there's a large mass of us who, like, we can't even focus on so many things because our own personal psychological traumas are making it so that our energy is, like, dissipated. And, you know, for the for the black female, but really for the black male as well. So confused on really how to be and just to be not terrorized by white people everywhere you go. If you exude a certain level of masculinity um, or if you're aggressive, you know, so that you are, so that you try not to be that, just so that you can just be at peace. You can be peaceful. And I hear it all the time, like when I listen to black males, especially on campus, the way that they talk, the way that they're moving. And it's just, it's so sad because, you know, in what space, like, we don't really have the institutions to help people help ourselves through that. Like, we're just now even realizing, like, whoa, look, this is what happened. This is what's happening. Um, so, like, it be a while before we really can even have open conversation about how we've all been um, sexually terrorized and confused and abused and such. So I, it's not like I wish I could speak this particular thing to just all I can say is I don't even have words because it's just that bad. For me, when I hear it, it's just that bad. So, thank you. Can I be Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you. Thanks, um, thanks uh, Gus, for the opportunity to speak. And um, I, I like uh, uh, both Rob's and uh, Emma's contributions. Yeah, I can definitely speak to the mother hunger. Um, this book really kind of brought a lot of that into focus for me the first time I read it, and even more so the second time. My mother and I have a very tumultuous <laughs> relationship and have since probably I was born. Um, and at this point, we're not speaking, haven't been for a number of years. And um, I know for a fact, especially after listening to Dr. Welsing, in addition to reading this book, that the 
reasons I dealt, indulged in sexual activity starting at 14 years old, um, I know was the fact I, the fact for the fact that I was looking for a mother for that feminine um, connection and that touch. So I know exactly what um, Dr. Welsing has spoken about. She's is so incredibly correct with that. Um, and this book also brought that home with that term and just the definition of the term. So um, I agree with him. And there's a lot of us, both black males and females, who have that um, that issue that we have to work through, and it's hard to discuss for a lot of us, myself included, sometimes. Um, one thing I found interesting that um, that was written in the book, it says, uh, Douglas turns a potentially devouring legacy of slavery, this is on page 115, an emotional state of loss and longing into a self that is gender ambiguous and imbued with regenerative capacity. And I don't understand what that means, except in the context of personal experience. My wife, uh, one of her closest friends, happens to be a black male homosexual, and um, she has told me stories of where he has referred to his anus as a vagina. I guess they call it mangina sometimes. And because what regenerative capacity could there be? in suffering through slavery and abuse and racism like supremacy. So I believe that this line was a line specifically written by a homosexual male, um, being the author of the book, if he wrote it, or potentially the people who uh, edited the book. Um, and, and, and it's in that vein that that particular line makes sense. Outside of that vein, it does not make any sense to me. Um, so it just stood out as something interesting. Um, he writes also on page 107 in reference to De- Frederick Douglass, Kobe makes makes delight in sport of Douglas. He tortures him at least once a week for six months. The reader has to has to, has to but repeat in his own mind once a week the scene in the woods where Kobe subjected me subjected me to his merciless lash to have a true idea of my bitter experience there um, during the first period of the breaking process through which Mr. Kobe carried me. Following this passage and in numerous places throughout Douglas's narratives, he insinuates that much worse than what Oh, much worse than what he can uh, describe occurred on, Kirk, on Kobe's plantation. I have no heart, he admits, to repeat such separate, each separate transaction. Such narration would fill a volume much larger than the present one. I aim only to give the reader a truthful impression of my slave life without unnecessarily affecting him with harrowing details. Wow. I mean, I just can't imagine what brutality um, he had suffered through just to be able to write something like that. And um, also, the way that he described the lashing as a rape sort of experience, a, a violent sexual um, attack, kind of reminds me because a lot of the most intense violence tends to happen a lot around the breaking process. And I equate breaking of a slave in that way, that violent lash tearing into the flesh, almost like breaking the hymen of a female because they're feminizing the black male in person at that point. And the more brutal they are, the more pliable. Um, the person becomes to whatever machinations these white diabolical creatures have come up with. And um, it was just interesting. I like the way that he actually facilitated that in the writing. It was just brilliant in um, regards to how I was able to interpret the writing in that regard. Um, Also, on page 112, he writes, uh, in Douglas's writings, mother loss and mother hunger, the desire for the mother, the desire for an infinite familiar touch to know one's origins and tribal legacies, Serve as emotional guideposts that help us to understand, um, help us to understand where and how Douglas hungered, and from where within himself he transformed this potentially self-consuming hunger. In my final analysis, I read this mother hunger beyond the physical loss of his mother as a fecund place within Douglas's self, from which he gives birth to the promise of the republic, 
himself as a masculine icon and all of the emotional and psychic hungers that he carries out of slavery. And <clears throat> excuse me, there, there again, um, he's using the brutality that he experienced, um, the, the author's implying, to give birth to the promise of the Republic. And I just find that to be very confusing because um, the Republic he's speaking of is the Republic of White Supremacy and nothing's really changed whatsoever. It's just been more refined. So ultimately, again, it's that confusion in which the whole idea of him becoming this feminine vessel that's giving birth to me is kind of like replacing the feminine principle with this homosexualized male principle that is actually a victim of white supremacy. Um, thank you, and I'll meet my line. Mr. Demery and our caller at 7722. Did you all have commentary? Yes, sir. Okay, yes, I'll just add Lee up here. Uh, uh, I, I looked at uh, Frederick Douglass as, you know, and he's one of my greatest icons in his house in D.C. A lot of things in his house was modern. I think at one time he was probably one of the uh, uh, people in the United States. He was an ambassador. All these great things that he accomplished, his editor of newspaper. I just wanted to say that when I visited the house, though he had later on married a white woman, he was married to a black woman, and when the white woman came to live with him in his house, the room, what uh, room, a uh, black wife's room, living not in that room. Can it need? You know what? I experienced the entire house. I still have a lot of reverence for uh, what he accomplished and. Uh, everything that he was able to endure it does bring, you know, this does bring up some uh, interesting concepts. You know, uh, the psychological, the spirit, and the physical consumption that uh, whites have uh, done to uh, blacks in this country is just the greatest of and uh, it's just no comparison. Uh, the fact that uh, enslaved individuals, males, had no role models that they could look up to, no symbols of manhood, <clears throat> and could still, you know, endure and 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 keep that is just just phenomenal. Uh, uh, the one, it was three narratives, I guess, that Frederick Douglass wrote. I've only read one, and I think I'll make to read those other ones. Uh, the part where he used uh, it in, when he was talking about the slave's daughter or whatever, that's interesting. A lot of the concepts that the author is bringing forth. I don't know if I, each one of them, but he has some valid points and um, I'll just continue to, you know, follow along and 
and see what comes out. Thanks for taking the call. Yes, sir. Yes, I I had some thoughts this week. I listened to an archive program of Dr. Jordy Grew, and I believe the last call on that archive conversation, someone asked her, I believe from Atlanta, whether she thought that black people um, in this part of the world are affected by the legacy of slavery, um, specifically when it came to homosexual activity. And, and she, she believed that we were not, um, it was not a part of. I believe that this book um, makes me question that because it's widely held that black people are not affected by the um, legacy of slavery, specifically Frederick Douglass. I would like to see more uh, people engage in, I, I believe, I guess, whatever scholarly means, but just more scholarly work on this and investigate. Just, I enjoy reading uh, this particular aspect, not because of its, its levity, but because of it's helping to help all of us move forward with understanding what has happened. It's amazing that um, I believe Vincent Woodard or, or someone I mentioned, um, your author or someone I mentioned at the beginning of this book that very few books have been written about this subject. I think the author maybe alluded to another book he had found regarding this subject. And it's 2008 when he passed away and they compiled this book recently. So we, we can imagine all of the things that have not been brought to light. But um, again, I, I, it does make me think very, very closely about all the times that I've seen and had to have been essentially feminized in situations in my day-to-day life in order to not suffer the consequences. Almost, uh, I don't want to make parallels with myself personally, but I, I guess I am, whenever he was told to strip down and he did not strip. And after the second one, he says that he was, uh, he, that Kobe lunged at him like a tiger. Um, having worked in the construction field, not listening to what's being said to you is almost like a death wish. You know, especially with, with white foremen on jobs, their attitude, like, you don't listen to me, I'm going to kill you, boy. And that scene, he says, you know, he, he tore his hand, he beat him until the switch, you know, wore out. And, and, and it's that same mentality that is seen today in the actions of racist man, racist woman, racist child. So yeah, that was very, very touching um, to think about that. And then also the question that was posed to Dr. DeGruy, I'm I'm still kind of, you know, after listening to that archives um, recording, I'm still kind of marinating in my mind, you know, what, what, um, what, because she has thought about that. I would like to ask her that possibly, write write her and ask her about that and maybe see if she has maybe read this book um, because that might, might have her. Uh, change her thoughts or, or maybe give highlight why she still believes it's true. Thank you. Right on. A uh, few of the things that stood out in the text, uh, I will start with a footnote, even though I didn't start with a footnote last time, but um, 
when he, Vincent Woodard or the editors, when it's written that the conclusion has been reached, okay, I think Frederick Douglass was raped by some of these white brutes on the plantation, and maybe he was talking about this in code and some of his writings and speeches. Footnote 44 in Chapter 3, it reads, uh, they just talk about how they came to this conclusion. I partially credit my thinking along these lines to Charles Clifton, rereading voices from the past, images of homoeroticism in the slave narrative. Uh, and this is in The Greatest Taboo, Homosexuality in Black Communities, edited by Delroy Constantine Sims. This came out in 2001. Uh, Clifton feels that Douglas uh, positions the black male body himself in the role of female narrator who exposes the white rapist. The I who enters some dark night in company with a band of hardened villains is still white men. However, it is not black females, Amanda or Esther's, who become a degraded victim to the brutal lust of fiendish overseers, but rather young black men. Clifton's essay, which does more speculating than working through of inquiries, does not apply this observation more broadly to Douglas's life and writing. Thought that was interesting. Might be something that folks want to pick out for uh, further reading. Um, that whole passage where he talks about his Douglas writing uh, in code about this white woman uh, being raped, uh, presenting kind of a metaphor. How would you feel if I did this? If I, you know, took the little white girl on the plantation and did all these things to her that these things actually happened. Uh, to him, that may actually been true. You certainly do have lots of white sexual uh, deviants. Uh, he could be totally correct. I might even be leaning to say, yeah, I think that is the case. I think that's one of the things we brought up for about the last year or so from uh, the half has never been told, the American Slave Coast, why is the rape of enslaved black males, why is that not included? Uh, even though they will bring up uh, rape of black females from time to time, they don't bring up generally at all rape of black males, Frederick Douglass or anyone else. So I think that def absolutely could be true. Um, let's see. The next thing, I think this, uh, when you have some sort of pairing, whether it's Frederick Douglass and John Brown or any of these other uh, abolitionists or this other narrative, uh, the Negro, as there are a few white men, this French novel that was really popular from before where it's one black male and one white person, one white man. I think that's pretty common even still today, uh, like the Lethal Weapon series or uh, I think there are even some of these others, uh, 48 Hours, where they'll have, it'll be this black person. A black male and a white person and it's supposed to be comedy but it's the same notion of the black person is the child the white person is the authority figure and maybe the black person is there for sexual interest too some uh, homoerotic aspect I think if you look at a lot of these even Bill Cosby from I Spy back in the 60s same thing might be something to reinterrogate is there a homoerotic aspect to these pairings as well um, the next one when he's talking about David Walker uh, and his uh, how his his worldview in terms of black people and how he sees the black female body as the reproductive capacity for black people. Uh, when he says uh, the black male does not have a reproductive capacity and he also has no strongly defined interiority, I think that is what the system of white supremacy dictates, that black males are not going to be re uh, reproductive unless it is... Uh, 
for our purposes, for racist purposes. Uh, if we do not authorize you to do that, then, well, then, hey, you might be in greater confinement, you might be castrated, you might be dead, you may be somehow obstructed from being able to function as a father. And either if you have that child, we can come and take that child with social services or make it so that you don't have the ability to take care of that child and function as a father so that you will voluntarily uh, extricate yourself from that situation. Um, that seems to be the pattern of how all of this operates. Um, see the portion when describing some of these beatings that took place and the portion specifically when uh, what makes Henry so delectable to the masters the fact of her being almost Henny excuse me Henny being help uh, so delectable being almost helpless I think that definitely continues to be a strong aspect in fact Jeffrey Dahmer when we talked about him on the program before he had a great radar he could pick out people that were vulnerable that were helpless would be easier to go after uh, and devour literally these non-white people I think whites they do that all the time in fact that's how they work let's see if we can destroy the black family so there won't be a support system they won't have anyone who can help them they'll be ours and we can do whatever we want to them rape plunder cannibal all of the above um, and younger people too younger people who don't have an understanding of racism um, I thought it was great him just talking about all of the sacrifices that Frederick Douglass's mother made to see him. I think that is one thing that is consistent uh, in terms of black people really having a high value on black families. White people consistently and successfully destroying those bonds and black people working and, and doing whatever they can to try to repair them or uh, just to have some element of uh, family connection. Uh, just seeing that over and over, the sacrifices that are made, I'm glad that was included. Um, let's see. The, yeah, the, I think Roz said this. The sentence where he says, Douglas turns a potentially devouring legacy of slavery and emotional state of loss and longing into a self that is gender ambiguous and imbued with a regenerative capacity. I have no idea what that means. To me, I can only state again, this sounds very similar to the same pattern that we've heard and talked about for years. What is required under the system of racism, white supremacy, that contempt for gender. If you're a black male, maybe we won't terrorize you quite as bad. You're still a victim of racism, but maybe we will allow you to have your genitals while you're here on the plantation. If you behave in an effeminate manner. Uh, when we had the author of Listen In uh, on the program, black female, when she talked about how she, she encourages black males in the workplace, if you want to try to survive, not be mistreated so much, maybe watch your voice. If you're a larger black male, if you're a darker black male, isn't that the same thing that Norma Stamper said? More likely you're going to get uh, the nigger knocker upside the head and shot and tased if you're larger, darker, more black male, uh, maybe a, a stronger illustration of black masculinity. Got to make sure we neutralize that immediately. That just sounds like the system of white supremacy at work, not some sort of regenerative capacity because I'm behaving in an effeminate manner. Um, I said last audio segment after the first segment ended, I talked about those white abolitionists and how they got upset with Douglas when he became a little bit too free thinking. Uh, and he hit that right uh, in the second uh, portion when they got upset with him, when he tried to go out and be independent and start his own paper, standard operating procedure. Uh, let's see, last few things I need to get in before we wrap things up. Um, let's see. The scene when he goes to the White House, I thought that was 
really paying, and I mean in a book that is filled with just atrocities and all kinds of violations of black people. That scene I thought was just, it was really sad where he's done all of these things and you go there uh, and is, who is this nigger at the door? Get out of here. What are you doing? <laughs> he's, he's standing he says, man, this is why some of my black friends, I told them to come and they were like, no way. They didn't want to do it. They didn't want to be subjected to this sort of thing. And he stays and they finally work it out and he gets to go in to be surrounded by all these racists. Uh, Abraham Lincoln and everybody else, all of these racists. I think uh, Thomas in New York, he would say this, another illustration of white uh, validation. Uh, I do not uh, view this as anything. I don't, I don't even think viewing it as mother hunger, to me, that also does not make sense. Him uh, looking up even the way that he describes uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, that was kind of uh, discomforting, to use the term from the book. Uh, hearing all of those descriptions, but to me, that is just, again, it's further evidence of the system of white supremacy. Frederick Douglass did marry uh, a white woman eventually in his life. He's a victim. I'm a victim. Uh, but I think that just shows the damage that this system wreaks, where you faced all of this, you've been abused, you've been terrorized, the psych lifelong psychological damage uh, that this does to the mental health of black people. How do you recuperate? Uh, what is it that I can do to possibly put myself in a healthier position, a better position where I'm not losing family members like my mom and denied access to even seeing her burial, denied access to even health uh, and being able to protect myself if white people validate me? If the white U.S. president validates me, then I will be safe. I will be a citizen and nobody will be able to do that to me again. Even that gets rejected. Uh, if I marry a white woman, maybe that'll keep me safe. I think these are the types of things that happen on a conscious, subconscious level where we're all just looking for liberation from all of this terrorism. And certainly if you've been mauled, mutilated, raped, denied your parents and everything else, you would try to do anything to keep those type of things from happening to you uh, again. At least that's my uh my assessment. Uh, I will stop there. Dr. Nell Irvin Painter, she was referenced earlier in some of her scholarship uh, on Sojourner Truth and some of these incidents, slave narratives. She's a guest on the program before. We definitely uh, recommend folks checking out some of her work as well. We'll stop there. We'll be here next Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Session number five will be right at the end of uh, session, uh, excuse me, chapter three. And we are about halfway through the book, so we'll probably have another four weeks before we get done. If you have thoughts, comments that you would like to share, write them in, email them. We'll share as we go. We have uh, quite a few more sessions to go before we end, so we'll include your commentary if you want to write in for people who listen to the archives. We'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. We'll review news observations from the past seven days on the plantation. We'll also be here on Sunday for the Global Sunday Talk on Racism, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, 12 noon, excuse me, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific. Again, that's the Global Sunday Talk on Racism, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. That is early this Sunday. Uh, with that, thanks everyone for tuning in. I hope the book has been constructive. Uh, I am looking forward to reading more <laughs> of the text. Lots to think on. If you uh, something that we read or covered and you think about it, bring it back up next week after you've had an opportunity to think more. Uh, with that, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy, certainly an environment where you have racist, sexual predators, liars looking to do all manner of harm to folks with melanin. You want to be in your right mind at all times. I don't think having a brew or wine or a cigarette or a joint or anything else, anything, any other narcotics poisons that whites come up with, I don't think that's going to help us solve 
the problem racist man racist woman racist child with that creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.